podcast. I was so unhappy, lonely, isolated, terrified. I got to a point where I couldn't see a future and is something that was so shameful I can't like, you know, talk about it. No amount of guilt will ever change the past. No amount of anxiety can shape the future. I'm not of the belief that had I figured this out, I would have been a better performer. I just think I would have been happier throughout my entire career. We tend to think professional athletes live these perfect, charmed lives. Genetically gifted, they seem to effortlessly conquer physical challenges with confidence, propelled by physiques unattainable by mere mortals. From the outside looking in, Tim Tollefson is one such example. One of the world's most successful ultra runners, Tim has a slew of impressive race victories to his name. Accomplishments matched with a winning smile and handsome looks that would lead just about anyone to believe him to be this exemplar of strength and of health. But behind it all, Tim waged this very private two decade long battle with body dysmorphia and disordered eating that not only compromised his athleticism, but completely debilitated him, producing this never ending cycle of anxiety, of loneliness, self-hatred, and the inability to even show up for the people he cared about most. Now, while we've become accustomed to addressing food disorders with women and with girls, there is a certain stigma or taboo that persists when it comes to how these conditions, despite their prevalence, afflict men, most of whom suffer in silence, reluctant to even ask for, let alone receive help, which is why Tim's decision to come out publicly to discuss what he's endured and his path to healing is just so powerful and important and why I wanted to have the conversation you're about to hear. I got a few more things I want to say about Tim before we get into it, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. 
I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, Tim. Today, Tim shares his experiences, his challenges, and the path that he's forged to reclaim his sense of self-worth and find balance in a world and a sport that pushes us to extremes. He opens up about his decision to go public with his struggles, the role of social media in perpetuating negative body image, and he shares some of the tools that he uses to overcome negative self-talk and reform a positive relationship with food. We also explore the power of community and the importance of seeking support in the recovery process. If you suffer from an eating disorder or know someone who does, this episode is just appointment listening. Towards that end, you can find a list of resources in the show notes for today's episode at ritual.com on the episode page. In a world inundated with diet speak, quick fixes, protocols and diet optimization, shrouded and dripping in vernacular about weight loss, weight management, and shame, to which I'm not immune, honest and authentic conversations about food and loving our bodies is, I think, just more important than ever. 
I have so much respect for Tim's strength, his courage, and his vulnerability for coming forward. I really want you to hear and receive his message because it is powerful. So here we go. This is me and Tim Tollefson. So happy to have you here, man. Uh, excited to talk to you. You've been on this journey with mental health, uh, with body dysmorphia, with disordered eating, and you made this uh, decision to go public with this struggle and your recovery process, um, initially through the documentary that you made with Koros, which I found to be very impactful and courageous, the level at which you were willing to be vulnerable and I'm sure has been you know, impactful for a lot of people. So, you know, let's let's just start there, like laying yourself bare. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was terrifying. Yeah. I, I hated it. Um, it. And you know, it's funny as as an athlete and a dreamer, I had always kind of visualized that someday I might make the rounds in media and you know be on Good Morning America or sit with you. Mm-hmm. But it would have been after winning UTMB or having some big accolade next to my name. The and, perfect set of circumstances. Yeah, and and so that's all how I always like you know, kind of wrote that story. But I think this is actually more poetic and kind of in line with where I am at, where it kind of is a re- deep reminder that we're so much more than those accomplishments. And I am, I mean, I'm actually really, Lindsay was asking me like, are you nervous? And I said, no, like mm-hmm. I'm pretty psyched because for the first time in my life, I'm gonna give, or we're gonna have a chat where I don't feel like I'm holding this huge secret. Right, like, it's, yeah, it's much this, more stressful it, if you have to show up and wear this certain mask and answer questions in a certain way that's gonna further this image that you're trying to project. Yeah. And it's a lot more relaxing when you're like, I have nothing to hide, ask me anything. And it's it just whatever it is, it is. Yeah, yeah. like you're, you're not defaulting to those like, you know, I don't know, perfectly crafted answers you've preloaded mm-hmm. because you know how to dodge questions. And I think it's sort of that act of self-preservation where you're embarrassed or shameful of something. And it's, it's not that you don't wanna be honest, but you don't feel that you can, right. right? So you have this secret life that you're trying to basically hold like at the same time as holding up this image. So, right, and the, the lock on that cabinet is shame. Yeah. Right, and <laughs> it, it has, uh, such a powerful grip as a motivator to yeah. you know keep things quiet, keep things private, uh, and the fear that kind of lives behind that drives your life. Yeah, and I think shame is a very powerful emotion to basically make you, I don't know, kind of like retreat from society, mm-hmm. you know, you, or relationships. Sure. Um, yeah, you isolate. Um, yeah. Uh, shame, you know, shame grows in the dark and. Uh, yeah, you withdraw from humanity because yeah. it's too anxiety ridden to, <laughs> you know, sort of hold that mask up yeah. and be around people. It's exhausting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you have stepped out into the light. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that was, I mean, part of what I've learned in some of these recovery aspects or the aspects of recovery is that I have to learn to sit with anxiety and not reduce it. You know, and I think that's part of the like body dysmorphia and OCD stuff. You know, there are therapies that treat you like in CBT or others like that you wanna like diminish the anxiety and how do you like breathe through it. But in, you know, these compulsive disorders, you need to learn to sit with it. You know, let Mm -hmm. that anxiety course through your veins and recognize that the fear that's causing you to maybe do these compulsive acts isn't actually there, but like that obsession and the compulsion are linked through the anxiety. And so we're not, 
trying to remove the anxiety. We're just basically trying to acknowledge it and tell it to get the hell out of here. Right, and so so the difference being, yes, with compulsive disorders or um, addictions, there is this unbelievable drive to change your state. Like it's so uncomfortable to sit with whatever you're mm -hmm. experiencing that you will literally do anything to take yourself out of that. And it's on autopilot, right? So whether that's through a substance or a food or withdrawing from people or gambling or some kind of weird, you know, obsessive compulsive behavior, it's all a coping mechanism, a defense strategy to remove you from that discomfort. And recovery is about, as you said, sitting in it and realizing as much, like, cause when it comes up, you literally feel like you're gonna die, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's like life threatening mm -hmm. and to learn that feelings are just feelings. And even though it might feel like it's gonna kill you, the one thing you can count on with feelings is that they always change, they never stay the same. And you have to kind of build that muscle over time. Yeah, and, and I, even though, I mean, now I'm 38 and I started therapy when I was 35. I, I feel like I, you know, I'm an adult, but sometimes emotionally, I feel like I'm still very stunted. And, you know, like I remember first time in therapy, like l talking about emotions, like I, I could name happy, sad, angry, nervous, mm -hmm. but then like I got this emotional wheel from my therapist and I don't know, like yeah. dozens and dozens and dozens of, you know, descriptors on there. And, you know, just kind of that, that entire quiver of different emotions. Like I just hadn't ever really processed or been able to identify them. And I think what you're saying that leads to us, if you can't process your emotions, we tend to either harm ourselves or sometimes other people in response to it. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think with my, through this, you know, through some of the treatment, I realized that the more I spoke about it, the more I opened up to Lindsay or my family or, you know, that Koros documentary, which was absolutely terrifying to mm -hmm. do. Um, being someone that's afraid of other people's opinions, like that drives a lot of my right. stuff, like just that fear of being made fun of or ridiculed um, or not being enough. I think that was a sort of an act of confronting that anxiety demon of being so afraid, but recognizing that I came through it. And not only was I okay, like I probably connected with more people as a result of it. Sure, of you course. Know? I mean, that one act, I mean, I had more responses, like thousands of people reaching out, men, women, you know, people across the spectrum, like either thanking or saying, hey, I deal with these things. And, and I mean, I, I didn't have the energy to respond to all those people. So like, you know, I, I, I felt bad about that. You know, it was like, in, in my, I guess, athletic life, I've, I've always made it a point to like respond to every DM or comment mm -hmm. and, you know, cause I just feel grateful that someone's taking notice. But in this one, I didn't have the There's energy no to yeah. do that. And so like, pardon me, but I, I was able to acknowledge that and let it go and like, hey, I, people don't expect a response. And I think, cause I've been in their shoes where you feel seen or heard if someone else talks. And I think that was what really, in combination with the, hey, this is part of the, you know, part of the healing process. I also recognized, if I can make one person feel less alone, then it will all be worth it. Because I mean, I am a pretty like genuinely like happy go lucky guy and I, I love life, but I got to a point where I couldn't see a future. And I know that's the case for a lot of people. And you feel isolated, you feel alone. You feel like you're the only person that's ever gone through this, had that thought, sat with that emotion. And I just recognized if my, you know, overcoming this fear that, I was building up in my own head is something that was so shameful I can't like, you know, talk about it. Then if that can allow someone else to feel empowered enough to go 
seek help or talk to a friend or talk to their parents, then it'll all be worth it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and of course it is. And it you, is. You are experiencing that. There's this, you know, baked in irony because <laughs> in the process of making that film, to your point, I'm sure it was terrifying, and you're thinking you're going to be judged, and all your perfectionism and OCD, and and uh, you know the fear around like uh, you know external um, acceptance and all of that just starts you know lighting up your brain like crazy. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the connection that ultimately you're seeking that that is the reason why those maladaptive, you know, thought patterns come up is achieved through the vulnerability and the courage to, you know, to kind of speak your truth. And that's what truly connects people, right? Yeah. So it's bizarre. It's like everything inside of you is saying, this is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And yet ultimately it solves the underlying problem that those defense mechanisms are trying to protect you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, against. It's a very like counterintuitive, strange thing. It's strange. And, and I think there is a level of, I don't know if the right term for it, but almost like performative vulnerability where you know you know that there might be that response but i i have found cuz i've engaged in that kind of stuff over the years mm-hmm. where you know i might say something knowing that like people might feel sorry for me and then they're going to like you know be there to like coddle me but like something like this i think i knew it was i it was so uncomfortable and i like i knew that i was i was more in that like you know if we had that Venn diagram more on the side of like this is what i need to be doing mm-hmm. you know i don't think vulnerability is easy i think mm-hmm. it is hard like and if and if it's if it's not hard, you're probably it, not actually being vulnerable. That's probably right. Like you're, you're still like- <laughs> There's performance the, vulnerability. The There's a lot of that yeah. out there, right? Yeah. You Especially know? on social media, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, and figuring out how much to tell of your story or that. Uh, and and I, like everyone, I have a challenging relationship with social media and, and I perpetuate it because over the years, I've carefully curated mm-hmm. the image I want to see. And that fed my, by dysmorphia where, I would check in with what I posted. And then if I'd see myself in the mirror, it wasn't that exact frame that I hand selected right. where gravity was like working perfectly <laughs> perfect to make me stride like, yep. that, yeah. And then I yeah, like, yeah. in reality, I'm like, that's, you know, that was a hundredth of a second. I was comparing myself against my own thing. So I contributed to all of that negativity mm-hmm. that would just spiral in my head. Right, well, all the incentives in your world, like line up to, you know, kind of, make that situation more exacerbated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something unique about, first of all, like being an athlete and suffering from this because you have to be competitive and you have to show up with your game face and there is some masking that goes into how to be competitive and, and on the edge that you want and need to be to you know be amongst the elites. But then on top of that, the bigger issue being that you're male. And I think the conversation around eating disorders and these types of, of compulsions with women is much further you know, down the line. Like there's, there's not as much sort of shame and hiding in the conversation around how this impacts women and girls than, there, than, than it is with men. And, and, and I really think that's a big reason why I think it's so important what you're doing, um, because I think this is something that is massive and hidden among men. And you can see it beneath and behind so much of the diatribalism and the nutrition wars that we see on social media, which, you know, I'm not immune from that as this like plant-based person, of course, Uh, but whether it's like vegan, keto, low carb, uh, you know, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, like all of these approaches in the kind of manosphere are shrouded in language around optimization and performance. 
But in reality, I think behind that, for a lot of people, it's about weight loss, weight management, it's about body image. Um, and it's a way for men to kind of hide that they're suffering from a version of what you have endured um, while looking outwards to the world as if they're like a biohacker or something like that. When in truth, there's a lot of insecurity and shame and guilt um, because just like women, men go on Instagram and they see all these guys with idealized you know, figures and most people don't look like that. And yeah. even the people that do look like that probably only look like that temporarily or with the right filter and lighting and all the, all the rest. Yeah, indeed, Ag- agreed. Yeah. It's, um, I think there, and I'm hoping this is a generational thing that we start to see kind of dissipate, but there is that notion of boys don't cry. You know, and I definitely, I mean, I wasn't explicitly raised that way, but I think, you know, people I was around like friends and like, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the undercurrent that you notice. And, and I just, I don't think I really had honest conversations with anyone close to me until I was probably in my thirties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of internalized things. And I-, I About anything you mean in general, <laughs> like just, just the emotional, you, you being in touch with your emotions and the truth of who you are. Yeah, and I, I think, I think a lot of that is I, and I don't know where it began, but I, I always thought that, you know, maybe you know, that was a weakness. Like somehow I connected those dots and like, I was gonna just be tough. I was gonna like, you know, bury it, swallow it. You know, I could grit through anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, I unfortunately do that with injuries also where I, I still get in f- afraid of t- like telling Mario I'm hurt, you know, my coach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that should be easy now. Like I've been doing this for 20 years, but like I almost view like getting uh-huh. injured as as a, a weakness or it's an, you know, it's an inadequacy. And mm. I'm afraid to tell people that. And I think with emotional stuff, it was similar. I, I just, you know, internalized everything. And the more you internalize things, the more that echo chamber gets deeper and deeper inside your own head. And as you said earlier, you know, shame and all these other, you know, like emotions that we don't wanna take root, they, they just feed in that darkness. Mm. And I think that unless you give voice to these things, it's easier for it to kind of, you know, the ruminations to kind of take really deep root and it's hard to then dig those out. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanna do a little what it was like, what happened and what it's like now in the parlance of recovery. But I think it would be helpful to first kind of define what we're talking about. When you say body dysmorphia or eating disorder or OCD, like what are you saying specifically? Like how do you define those um, phrases and words? I think it's also important and I'm sure you have a really astute and uh, intelligent audience. Like I, I have a graduate degree in my own experience, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I might, I, you know, I'm a licensed physical therapist, but and a pro runner, but I am not a psychologist. So like I can speak from my end of one. Um, but, uh, but that's it, what we do in it, recovery <laughs> anyway, yeah, right? Like we're here to share yeah. our experience. We're not yeah. here to provide medical advice. Yeah, yeah. true. And, uh, and I think especially with the eating disorder stuff, it's a, it's a fascinating illness. There, I mean, there are a lot of different kind of branches of it, but in general, it's a competitive disorder. So I've even found myself that I listen to other people's recovery stories or they, you know, kind of recount what happened. And my brain latches on to like trying to find hacks of how to like double down on what I'm dealing with. And so I, I you know, I, I try to be very careful with the way I describe things and not romanticize aspects too yeah. much, you know, cause unfortunately it is, it, that is kind of true to that disorder. And, and it's really interesting that it, um, of all mental illnesses, like especially anorexia and nervosa has the highest mortality rate 
of any mental illness, like I even more than depression, which, wow. it, I mean, that's really powerful to think that, you know, like, it's like, you know, cause and as you said earlier, we all have issues with food, you mm-hmm. know? So it's, it's kind of like, hey, like, oh yeah, I, I count my calories or, you know, I'm afraid of overeating or like that mm-hmm. Thanksgiving dinner did me in, I, you know, unbuttoned my belt and, you know, and so those are normal. But I think with any disorder, it's when it becomes debilitating, intrusive, you know, all encompassing and you, it creates so much anxiety, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I guess from my experience, um, like eating disorders, like I've, I've kind of, I don't know, tried on different hats in the eating disorder, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, in the, in the fashion show of eating disorders. Yeah. Um, like I, I had a bout in college where I was dealing with anorexia. Um, I'm now actually clinically diagnosed with OSFED, which is mm. other specified feeding and eating disorders mm. because the big Never three, yeah, the big three are anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia nervosa, and then binge eating. Those are kind of like the three big mm-hmm. guys, like people have heard of those. Um, but I think what clinicians found is that the diagnostic criterion in the DCSM-5 is so specific to meet that classification. It was leaving a lot of people that were suffering out and then you can't get access to healthcare. Mm. You know, if you don't have an, av- an like an, an adequate diagnosis. But so like, like to say disordered eating is sort of a catch-all umbrella for yeah. anything else that might fall between the cracks. Yeah, because I think eating disorder versus disordered eating is is like, I, like maybe this is a bad cli- analogy. A, a, clinical, a yeah. clinical diagnosis versus something's fucked up over here, but yeah, we yeah. just don't have a name for it. Yeah, yeah. so I, and maybe mm-hmm. this is a bad analogy, but like, a binge drinker versus an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I went on a bender and like I displayed some of these behaviors, but you can choose to stop. You can like go on with your life. The alcoholic can't, Mm -hmm. you know? So maybe maybe there's some sort of parallel there. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. So, you know, with someone suffering from an eating disorder, like, you know, an anorexic, it's not that they don't want to eat or they know they, they can't eat, but there's something like in their brain that's like basically gone haywire that they, aren't able to, mm-hmm. and even as they deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I base, and, and through my experience in the medical model, like I'm thankful that my therapist knew how to, you know, I don't know, not game the system, but like treat it appropriately. Where like, I was probably gonna get denied because I didn't fit one of those, you know, three big ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for all intensive purposes, I'm a healthy white male, you know, a pro athlete. Yeah, you're not. Yeah. You're not like. I don't uh, fit the bill you're not. Like, you're not. You know, stumbling in at 85 pounds with your no. hair falling out. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it, why would an insurance want to pay for my eating disorder? You know, mm-hmm. treatments. Um, but um, so I think that that's a bit of the, like the you know disordered eating. I think everyone probably in, in experiences disordered eating at some point. You know, and as you said, the fad diets that promotes a lot of disordered eating mm-hmm. behaviors. I think though, if you have someone that's predisposed to developing an actual eating disorder, that's where those fad diets are dangerous. Right, because you can just hide behind it yeah. and perpetuate. It's like, oh, like, and, I'm uh, intermittent yeah, fasting for right. 22 hours a day. Right, <laughs> actually you're just not eating. <laughs> you're just not yeah. eating. Like, you're not eating and you're doing it out in yeah. public in a way where nobody can say anything. Yeah. Uh, but in reality, what is actually going on yeah. here? Right, Yeah. right. And so how does OCD and other kind of compulsive dif- disorders, perfectionism, people pleasing, all of that. Like how do these things, cause it's all a soup, right? And on some level, you know, it's, 
the longer I've been doing this and the longer I've kind of been in this world, like it all feels like the same thing. It just shows up in different ways, yeah. whether you're a heroin addict or an alcoholic or a gambling addict or a love addict, there's something inside of you, something happened to you or you're wired in a certain way where you feel not at ease with yeah. yourself and you don't like how you show up in the world and it's so uncomfortable that you develop these little things that you do to make you feel safe and okay. And often they're about trying to regain or exercise some level of control in, in a situation in which you feel out of control and food you know, plays a big part in that. Um, but really it's rooted in a sense of feeling different than everyone else, of being insecure, like you don't measure up and you're, you in and of yourself are not okay. Yeah. So how does that work? And like, how do those other kind of like, what is the OCD piece and the yeah. people pleasing and the perfectionism aspect of all of this? OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder isn't, I think it's classified as an obsessive compulsive related disorder. So they're like two separate things, but they're kind of in that soup mm -hmm. of compulsive behaviors. Um, and from my understanding, the big difference is they share the same basically obsessions, compulsions linked with anxiety but body dysmorphic disorder is directly linked just to your body where OCD has like very kind of clear pathways of like harm OCD or, you know, germ OCD mm -hmm. or um, uh, just or, right OCD, all these like, right. you know, religious OCD, they fall into these little, little categories and like body dysmorphia is almost like, it's just the body OCD. Right, um, I see, I got it. So um, whether you're, you know, uh, you know, checking the lock on your door ten times, or um, you know, whatever. However, that shows up. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a stress reducing, anxiety Correct. reducing kind of behavior. So for like the yeah. by dysmorphic suffer, they may be checking themselves in the mirror, which we all do. But are you checking yourself in the mirror for hours a day? Like, mm -hmm. is it impeding your ability to go to work? It, you know, are you looking at every reflective surface? Did you know you can see your reflection in a spoon? You know, and obviously a spoon is also, you know, concave or convex. So it's gonna like distort it even more, oh but God, you yeah. will see yourself in uh -huh. a non-flattering way and think that's real. Um, and so there's, I mean, I found that anything that was reflective became basically an area that I could reduce the anxiety. Mm. But the more you engage in those compulsions, the stronger the link becomes mm. and it just like self-perpetuates and it gets to the point where you don't trust yourself if you don't do the compulsion because the obsession is so, I don't know, it, it's so invasive and debilitating and unwelcomed that you feel like you have to do the compulsion to reassure yourself that it's okay. Is that, you know, checking the lock yeah, yeah, over yeah. and over or washing my hands, are my hands actually dirty? Mm -hmm. um, and so with body dysmorphia, it could be checking, it could be, you know, fidgeting with your hair, you know, your glasses, making sure things are just right um, because your fear of maybe that rejection or the fear of other people judging you. Um, and I don't know, it, I think like in my family, like we have a, a pretty extensive history of alcoholism. And mm -hmm. so to what you said, like, I think there are a lot of similarities between all these things. It's like, and the funny it's thing the is- the same like, thing that you just found a different yeah. way of expressing. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of funny, like in, so I, I, I've had a really, really difficult relationship with food um, for a lot of reasons. But like, I, I basically like did suffer from bouts of extreme binging. It, again, I didn't fall into binge eating disorder criteria because I also compulsively exercised to like undo the binging. Right. So like I kept the balances, you know, 
like, you know, weighted right. correctly. But right. um, there was a point where I'd see my friends at parties drink and they never ate. So I thought, why don't I just drink instead of eat? Like maybe that can uh-huh. replace, you know? And ultimately I just end up drinking and eating, right. which at is three like in the morning, the you're a jack in the box. And yeah. It's like, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> add, add another 10 miles tomorrow on my yeah. run. Like, so it's like, mm. I'm very thankful that for whatever reason, despite our familial history, like I didn't seem to have the, the gene that latched mm. onto the alcohol. Like, cause I was raised with that awareness that like, right. don't touch alcohol. Like it's a really bad thing for our family. Like you should not go close to it. And so like, the first time I took a drink of alcohol, I think was my sophomore year, sophomore year of college. And I was terrified. Like what, I asked my friends, like, what's gonna happen when this touches my lips? You know, like, and, and <laughs> I was just like, brew. I was so scared. <laughs> and, um, and I think, but I don't know, like, so there, there definitely is a component of just that, that like overall anxiety, you know, mm. around a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but like with my, with my compulsions, I, I have a hard time remembering some things about like my childhood or my life. And that's probably pretty normal. Um, and I think what I've realized is over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years when I was really just like suffocating in my own thoughts, there wasn't room to entertain the past, you know, of experiences that were positive or amazing. Like, you know, cause I've, I've had a great life, but I think I, I just got so focused on trying to get through the day or that moment. All I could think about was numbers and food and, my body and these different, you know, compulsory checks that I would perform. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I, I first started to kind of notice this when I was a kid. Um, like I, I had kind of a, I guess I, I had like a, a challenging or troubling experience at like a church camp growing mm-hmm. up. And like, I, I must've been eight or nine. Yeah, I must've been eight or nine. And, and my mom, you know, she, we're, I was raised very religious um, and like we were sent away to a boys camp, you know, to learn how to, let's just say hunt fish, tie knots, all that yeah. fun stuff. And um, and my mom was pretty nervous. Cause like I'm eight or nine. She's like, oh, he's too young. And all of her church lady friends were like, no, no, this is great. Like we'll send all the kids, you know, all the boys are together. And so, you know, they send me to upstate uh, Minnesota. That's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I mean, it, it was, it was a great experience. You know, we got to do all that stuff, but um, it just so happened that like our counselor, he was this recovering addict and mm. I think he was six months sober and he was a born again Christian. He had found God and he wanted to basically just share it with everybody. You know, like he had to profess what he had learned and he wanted to share it with everyone. And someone thought it was good for him to be in charge of eight and nine year old, you know, mm-hmm. boys at a church camp. and. And so, and one thing with that experience was he was big on the book of Revelations. And I don't know, have you ever read Revelations? I can't remember the last time yeah. that I did. I know the story. Yeah, you know, I, mean, it, I think I know enough about. Yeah, it, you know, it's about end of fire times, and brimstone yeah, so it's, and what's going to happen. It's like a Stephen King novel yeah, to you know, an the end of times. Yeah, and and basically, like, really instilled in us that like, unless you're unless you're a good person, you lead a perfect life, and unless you also like ask for, you know, Jesus come into your heart, you will go to hell and you'll burn forever. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like, I definitely, you know, had a hard time with that. And I think I, so I end up to this day, like my mom will, you know, bring her to tears on this, but um, like I, I wrote her a postcard from camp that said, and I didn't send it. I tucked it in my bag and she found it a long time later, but uh, it, it said something like, 
Like, I don't wanna die here. Please come get me. Oh like God. I'm having this thoughts again. Oh my God. And I, I don't know where what that last yeah. sentence was, but like, you know, I may have already been dealing with some sort of mm. intrusive thought, but this basically like definitely kind of kicked it into high gear. And and following that experience, like she she tells that like the story that I then was really afraid of everything. Like everything was gonna kill me. Like mm. I I wore clinging gloves, goggles, and walked around with a Kleenex like spray bottle, just like disinfecting everything. Cause I was afraid that if I got germs inside, I would die. And then if I hadn't already asking for forgiveness for that one thing I just did, I'd end up in hell. Eternal and, damnation. And so reflecting on all this, well, and I guess, yeah, it led to compulsively praying and asking for forgiveness basically with everything. Like, am I a good person? Did I do that right? Am I perfect? You know. Cause it, you know, right. I, I was learning that love mm-hmm. was conditional and that it was dependent on basically, you know, something else granting me that. And, and, it, and I'm not here to say those are, you know, like beliefs that shouldn't be taught or, but in my personal experience, maybe it wasn't the right time or the right place or the right person to like really instill these things. And, and that was my first experience with a psychologist. My parents took me to a child psych and and again, I don't know why this is, cause I'm sure they never said anything, but like, I was terrified of going. Like something in my head told me, this is not normal. Like you're broken. And I, you know, had a huge tantrum, begged them not to tell my siblings that I had gone to a therapist. Like something in me at that age knew that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know where that came from, but the, the psychologist from what my mom describes, like said, you just have a really smart boy. Like he, He's really in tune to his surroundings. He's struggling with the home environment. My parents were going through a separation. Like I, you know, you know, and I was, I had a hard time with that, but mm-hmm. it, um, he said, you know, it's gonna f- find its way through. And, and as far as I know, like I didn't really have any lasting issues from like those compulsory things. And I didn't actively try to get rid of it. It just kind of disappeared. But that was my first experience with kind of that stuff. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. 
Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Wow, that's so interesting. Uh, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, basically you survived a trauma and you found these coping mechanisms that I don't know that you outgrew, they just became latent and found their way, you know, to different paths that, you know, kind of, and they served you, like they allowed you to survive and excel as an athlete and all these other areas. I I recently had, this guy, Richard Schwartzen, who's got this modality called internal family systems, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. It's, it's the idea, the basic idea is we're not one personality, we're the composite of like, you know, all different kinds of personalities that are, you know, acting up and vying for attention. And when something like OCD or a fear response happens, that's that one, that's one piece of your personality that was constructed specifically to protect you in a certain set of circumstances. And it works, it does Mm -hmm. protect you, but then you grow up and you're not five years old or eight or nine or 10, and it's not serving you anymore, but it's still just as powerful because it thinks that you're nine years old and you're still at camp, right? And making peace with that and trying to quell it and be like, it's cool, I'm good now, thank you. I don't really need you anymore, but I appreciate all the hard work that you've done for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like this process of like, um, understanding all of those different triggers and aspects of your personality to reconstruct, you know, a healthier one for yourself. And, totally. and as you were sharing that, I was thinking about that. And also just the idea that, I mean, first of all, credit to your parents, they like realized that you needed some help and sought out help, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, but you being so young and pathologizing that and, and that just exacerbating your sense of being being broken probably wasn't great. Yeah, um, and, and that's it, like, my parents are amazing. You know, like I, I, I feel like I had the best parents ever, you know, provided a loving household, always reassured us that, you know, we were welcomed, accepted, like, and so it's weird that like suddenly like some of these things I deal with, it's like, oh, well, obviously it probably came from like, just like your immediate inner circle. Like you were, you know, whatever, something happened in that there relationship. There is a breakdown. trauma. Yeah. And, like, but it's not about vilifying them yeah. or anything, just because something might've happened and maybe it wasn't, managed or dealt with uh, you know in the best way possible doesn't mean that they're bad parents oh, or no, not no, good no. people yeah. it's they were doing the best that they could under the circumstances but it doesn't you know it doesn't undercut the fact that certainly you know something happened or a set of things mm-hmm. happened that you know set you on a path to yeah. you know kind of everything that happened and where you are now and i think probably this again is a generational thing like each generation tries to provide a better household and experience for their kids, mm-hmm. like, cause like my parents had like, what I would label as like traumatic childhoods, whereas like I had it bougie, you know, yeah. it, it was, it was chill. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, there, you know, there are just things that happen. And, um, and I think, I think with, with, um, I don't know. And maybe it's, it's a bit of a cultural thing, but it's like, you know, that, that Minnesota nice, you know, mm-hmm. Lutheran Nor- Norwegian, you show up on Sunday <laughs> with a hot dish and a smile mm-hmm. and everything's always good. Like, right. you, you know, it's so like, I don't think I ever, and I, no, I know I never 
really started to talk about things that happened. And then at different stages in life, like you said, okay, maybe it kind of disappeared and then it resurfaced in experiences with bowling, or then it resurfaced in my competitive running, you know, once I got to college and like, that's where suddenly the eating disorder like surfaced up and like dealt with other things. So I, I think it, it was the, the fact that I never truly processed or, you know, kind of even like teased out what was happening it was just lurking under the surface sure. for something else to trigger it off. It's also further complicated by the fact that, I mean, you had mentioned earlier, like you were lucky that, you know, alcoholism runs in your family, but you sidestep that. But with alcoholism, you stop drinking and then you're on a path to sobriety. Like you set it down and you don't have to contend with it anymore. Whereas food, you have to eat every day. <laughs> it's so it haunts you forever. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like looming thing. over you all yeah. the time, which yeah. I actually think makes it more difficult. Um, and then on top of that, all of these traits that over time metastasize to become problematic enough to address in the meantime, help construct a personality, a lens on the world um, that fuel uh, exceptionalism, success and results. So while you're in that buildup, you're winning races, you're getting better as a runner, you're a professional, you're doing all of these things. Quietly, these things are your superpowers. So your relationship to them, even if you know in your heart of hearts, like this is not good, I shouldn't be doing this, but like, look what's happening. And mm -hmm. I'm on these podiums and this, so I, I'm gonna keep doing this. And this is like working for me makes it even more difficult when you have to break up with them because they are your best friends. There are times that I have been at my sickest and podiumed at UTMB. And so it's really hard to decouple right. those two. Right, Where, and, 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 if you, and if you do break up with yeah. them, then no more podiums. Yeah, you're, you that's are, what your brain tells yeah, you. Yeah, when yeah. in reality, right. it was a coincidence or it was, you know, it was, um, you know, it wasn't causation that because I held on to these certain things that happened, that then I podiumed. Arguably, you probably could have done better if you weren't dealing with all these other things, you know. Mm. But I, I do agree with you. I think that something like, like obsessive compulsive disorders, it is a bit of a superpower in the sense that like, it's really hard to manage living in your own head when it's, Basically, you're dealing with intrusive, suffocating thoughts, and you learn a lot of resiliency, endurance, patience, which I mean, you need mm -hmm. that in an ultra, right? right? Yeah. Like, so there are times where it's like, I almost feel thankful for, I, I feel thankful for those like the skills that were developed. I wish they had developed in a different way, uh -huh. you know? And because I, I think the more I learn about even sports psych, you can start to nurture those skill sets through much healthier outlets. You know, it doesn't have to be pathological. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't create the same kind of hormonal brain spike. It's very unfamiliar and feels yeah. not right, right? Yeah. Like it, it's like, no, I need to feel, I need to feel like I'm in pain or suffering or in this sort of, I have to conjure up a certain kind of state that I can manufacture through these behaviors to do it in the more graceful way that, requires a, a surrender and a letting go and more of an allowing feels like, you know, walking on Mars compared mm -hmm. to a lifetime of a certain way of doing things where you're getting the result that you're seeking. And you definitely like anyone that's run before, the more you run, the better you get, you know, and there's that direct 
correlation for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, I'm gonna put in more, I get more out. And obviously there are tipping points and you know, roadblocks that happen, but yeah, you start linking that and it becomes so strong that you, you can't imagine performing without doing the things that got you there. You know, and mm. I, I think there is that like, yeah, just being stubborn is a, a really good asset until it isn't. Right, like, right, it, it, it's a short-term strategy. It will get you to a certain point, yeah. but if you wanna have longevity yeah. or reach that, you know, kind of get off that plateau and get to the next level, you know, what got you there isn't the thing that's gonna get you to the next mm -hmm. place. And there's a discomfort with that. And then on top of it, um, being a runner and with the food piece, it's a weight weenie sport. Like, you know, the lightweight chassis is gonna navigate mm -hmm. those mountains a little bit more gracefully, yeah. right? So for any athlete who's in a sport like that, whether it's wrestling, running, ultra running, cycling, triathlon, where there's a power to weight thing, or even more aesthetic sports like bodybuilding, it, it's just, they're, they're, they're like, they're just rife environments for kind of cultivating these unhealthy mm -hmm. relationships with what we put in our mouth. Totally, and, and I think that is a, we're starting to see conversations change on that, which I love because when I was growing up in high school and college, it was the era of either explicitly saying you should look emaciated or it was implied you know, from some of the cult classic books mm -hmm. and other things that like I would, you know, just, you know, ingest and, you know, what people on the team would talk about and, you know, your peers um, or rumors, a lot of that, you know, or you'd see people, but it's, um, it, I think it's, you have to acknowledge that weight is a variable in running. And as you said, like, okay, like you can just do the simple physics on this. However, it's a low hanging fruit that we latch onto because we can manipulate weight pretty quickly. So we think, if I'm this powerful or strong or in, like have that much endurance, and if I just weigh less, I will perform X mm -hmm. better. And, and that just isn't the truth because there are a lot of other variables that go into it. And I think it's easy for anyone to look at in, you know, one of their running idols, because uh, I did this, and you forget that they may have been training their body for 10, 20, 30 years to adapt into that specific mm -hmm. like body type. Um, it didn't just happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And there are genetic, you know, anomalies out there where someone is just like, they don't have to manipulate their body and they're going to have this particular frame. You know, like I have very broad shoulders. Lindsay and I joke that I have birthing hips. Like I will never- For a fit, runner. For a runner. For a runner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm but, looking at you, you're like, a pretty slight dude. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's just, that's the dysmorphic like, I'll never piece fit into, too. Like, Oh, it definitely just is. Just you thinking like, I'm too big to be a runner and I'm looking at you yeah. and I'm like, you have the, you have a runner's physique. Yeah, and which the crazy thing is like, at my worst, when I was battling with anorexia in college, I was almost 35 pounds less than I am right now, which I don't, wow. like I can acknowledge my brain still says you have 35 pounds you could lose, but I know that's not true. Like I can just like start to acknowledge that and move on. But like in college, like, I don't have 35 pounds to lose. Like, mm. and it became a point where coach, my coach, my teammates, they were worried and bringing it up. And then you go into that defensive, angry method of like, I got everything fine. Like, mm -hmm. why are you accusing me? And you know, it's just that immediate, you know, kind right. of you know, self-preservation. When you were 35 pounds lighter, in addition to just the training and the mileage, yeah. uh, like what was a day in food for you then? Like, what did it look like? I was, I was restricting an incredible amount while training very heavily for a mm -hmm. distance runner. Um, Cause I, I just had this, 
very arbitrary and, and reduced thought that I should always be consuming less than 2000 calories a day, even if I'm running 90 to 100 miles a week. Mm -hmm. And so over time, you build up a huge deficit where your body starts to cannibalize itself, you know, cause you need nutrients mm -hmm. to fuel right. normal brain function, hormones, your, your bone density, all these things. Um, and But you're like, great, cannibalize away, cause I'm trying to get smaller. Yep, and I mean, and I hate to say this, but probably the highest high I've ever had is that euphoric feeling of like feeling like my bones or clothes hanging off of me or seeing the number on the scale. Like that was like, it's- It's the it's, needle in the arm. It's better than standing mm. on the top of UTMB's podium. Like, wow. and it, which is a weird, really strange thing to say. But I also know at the same moment, I was so unhappy, lonely, isolated, like terrified. So it, I'd like, I would never wanna go back to that, mm -hmm. but it, it was something that was powerful. And what was your level of self-awareness around, um, you know, the disease or, or disorder aspect of what you were doing? Cause I just know from my own experience, it's like, you, cut, you know, this isn't right or good. Yeah. You just kind of push that down and you're like, it's fine. I got this, I'm under control. It'll be cool. I definitely knew it. I mean, I, I think when you engage in certain behaviors where like you immediately have shame around what you just did, like, and you wouldn't be able to tell a friend what you just engaged mm -hmm. with. I think you you know that you're doing something that's not right. Like right. if you couldn't tell your grandmother that you were just like <laughs> eating out of the trash or like whatever you just did, like, you yeah. know, you know, some sort of, you know, purging behavior, like mm -hmm. that's not, that's not okay. Right. Um, and, and I think that's where like the, probably the components that I built as an adolescent of like really being hyper cognizant of my appearance and of my, the way I carry myself, everything from my voice to my hair, to my, you know, to, you know, my posture, all these things. Like I was just hyper cognizant of being judged. I think that led into, okay, now I'm an athlete and I see all mm -hmm. these other athletes and, and it's a very reduced view you see athlete X perform and you think it's because they look a certain way. And again, mm -hmm. you don't know what the training was that went into that. You don't know their individual biological differences. And, and what I noticed was I, I was very fortunate. Like I was never the best or even close to the best runner in high school, college, even pros like as a marathoner. But I had opportunities because I had friends with really fast people to like get into these training groups like in Mammoth mm -hmm. and like run and do easy runs for Meb like and, and do long runs with him. But like my brain's comparing me with Meb. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a fair comparison. Right. Like that, that's just not like <laughs> yeah. that should have never happened. Right, I mean, just to like, kind of drop into mammoth, like yeah. if, if comparison is the thief of joy, like you're in an environment where, you know, that comparison that you're running in your mind is gonna drive you insane. Oh yeah, because I, the, I you're, was broke, you're amongst, stole like, all my joy. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> and was that, uh, was Ryan Hall still, you know, doing his marathon thing so, at that time? Like, cause he obviously, he was like, I mean, he got so lean or yeah. whatever to the point. And then whether he overtrained or, you know, whatever yeah. was going on at that point, I mean, now he's a completely different human being, but yeah. you know, at that, at that time, it looks like he kind of took that all the way to the wall. He, he definitely, I, I think he would say he got 
everything mm-hmm. he could out of himself. Um, he had transitioned out of Mammoth right when I got there. Like Lindsay and I moved there in 2011 for an internship um, at the hospital as a th- uh-huh. for, for my therapy. Yeah. And um, at that point, Terrence, the coach, he was still in charge of the Mammoth Track Club. Ryan and Sarah had just left, but like Sarah came back and I did some training with her. Mm-hmm. But like it was Meb, Dina, uh, Morgan Euseni, and Anna Willard or Anna Pierce, and you know, so it was it was kind of track heavily focused um, with a few really stud marathoners like right. Dina and Meb. Right. Yeah. Um, I've had conversations on this podcast with Amelia Boone about her, you know, analogous um, adventures in, in, you know, in in this world of like struggling with relationship to food. I had Mary Kane in here, and certainly there's no shortage of of running institutions, especially when women and girls are involved, where the powers that be are are kind of issuing an edict of uh, not so healthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, dynamics around food yeah. uh, that have led to, you know, a lot of problems. And there's been a lot of spotlights, uh, you know, sh- shown on that world. But what does that look like when you're a male athlete? Do you have coaches that are saying you need to drop weight, or what is the, you know, kind of the power dynamic when you're underneath somebody who's guiding your career and 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 the kind of ripple effect on your relationship with food. I was very fortunate that my coaches never had those conversations in terms of like, we need to manipulate things. It I, doesn't seem to be a thing with guys. No, and I, I mean, to, to my coach's credit in college, like Gary, he pulled me aside and said, I'm worried about you. Mm. Like, are you eating enough? Like, and so he noticed something was happening. You know, I, I think, and back that was 2006, you know, it was quite a while ago now. I, I think at that time it was much more taboo. You know, he had the, you know, he recognized it, but I, I don't know if he knew what to do with it, mm-hmm. you know, where I think now we have much better systems in place where it's like, okay, like let's get you in touch with our school nutritionist or the school psych, or let's talk to the, you know, the, gen, the GP. And I think those types of things have improved a lot where, because as a coach, you're kind of like the gatekeeper. Like you're not the expert of everything, yeah. but you are dealing with the athlete the most. So you should be able to acknowledge and then pass you off an athlete off to someone that needs that expertise. Mm-hmm. And as you said, like in the worst case scenarios, like with a Mary Kane or NOP, you had bad actors playing roles they shouldn't have been playing under the guise of I'm guiding this career. And that's tragic, like mm-hmm. that's really, horrible situation. Mm-hmm. And I think the more things are talked about, we can start to undo some of that negative, you know, you know, those negative pathways. And then also the stigmatize or the like destigmatizing that like, okay, like it it's not a male thing. Cause I'm sure there are plenty of men in all those sports you listed yeah. that have had some sort of experience or at least thoughts on this stuff. And then worst case, and, and that goes back to what you said at the very beginning, you know, and I was talking to another pro uh, marathoner about this, like, you know, the, there are people in sports that like engage in disordered behavior for a season, you know, because they're like, hey, my nutritionist or mm-hmm. someone in my medical team says, I do need to cut weight for this boxing match. Like, and so that stuff happens and it could technically be done like with proper guidance, but, the addict or the dis, like the person that actually suffering, they can't turn it off when it's over. Like, and so we, it will just continue. Mm-hmm. It'll keep going despite the season being over. And yeah. it doesn't end until, yeah. you know, something intervenes or like 
you know, you hit your proverbial rock bottom. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I think that lives on a spectrum. It's not a light switch, right? No. Like right now, um, I've got a lower back condition. It's really got me benched and I can't move the way that yeah. I would like. And I haven't been able to run. I've just been way more sedentary than I have in a long time. And so put on a little weight, a little flabby, you know, looking in the mirror, not, not, that's not really how I wanna look. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can feel myself like, you know, how does that impact how I, first of all, then I don't feel good as good in the world and I don't feel like myself and my brain doesn't work. And that alters my relationship with food in a way and I'll avoid, you know, like some of that's fine and perfectly healthy. And some of it I can feel myself being a little compulsive about, like I'm not, I, I wouldn't consider myself to have a, 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 an eating disorder, but I noticed that, you know, compulsive kind of obsessive um, tickle on the back of the brain, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and it was weird, we were talking, I was at this Strava event yesterday, there's all these super fit people, yeah. you know, it's just like, and like, everyone's looking at me, oh, you're the guy with the pocket, you know, I was like, and I'm like, yeah, but I'm kind of and like, yeah, and yeah. I go through all of that, like insecurity and, yeah. you know, I wanna acquit myself and be the guy, like, could people are projecting onto me because they think they have a relationship with mm -hmm. me because they've listened to the podcast or whatever. And all of that is spinning in my head. And it and it's like, it's really hard to just get quiet and realize like, yeah. no one gives a shit. Like, yeah. you're, you're cool. Like, everyone's happy you're here, yeah. it's fine. And I think you don't have to go on the group run in the morning and like, you know, be yeah. in the lead pack and all yeah. of that like, but that's that's what's looping. And I've heard you say like, you're not worried about racing against the best at UTMB and how long you're gonna be out there and the suffering and how hard it's gonna be. You're freaked out about the fun run two days ahead of time. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. It, which is, it's a really strange thing to like, it's almost like a both and. I know I'm a competent and accomplished runner but at the same time, I don't think I'm like I'm worthy of being called a runner or showing up in the world with people because I didn't feel thin enough or mm. I didn't like it was terrifying. So if someone to leave. says to you, "Congrats," or like, "Wow, you know what you've done is amazing," like, I, it, do you kind of contract and feel unworthy of receiving nice things being said about you? Yes, and maybe a good example is in 2017 arguably probably the best race of my career. Mm -hmm. That's when you got third at UTMB. Yeah, right? shared yeah. the podium with Francois. Under 20 hours. Yep, Yeah. with Francois and Killian. Like the moment, like approaching the finish line, like it was pure joy. Like I'd just done something I dreamt of. Like I had like silenced the haters and the, the, the voices in my head. I just like was triumphant. But the half-life of that happiness didn't even make it to the podium the next day. Like that next morning I hopped on a bike and I was like trying to spin out my legs. I showed up and thankfully like we had podium jackets that I could wear, but jackets are shells that I would always cover my body in. So I wore pants and jacket on a hot day, staying on the podium, like super uncomfortable, but like afraid of what people might think of me. 12 hours ago, I had just run one of the best mm. races like ever at UTMB, but it didn't last. Like. And it seemed like the more I got into my career, especially the last couple of years, like that happiness half-life got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, mm. like, or it needed more and more to like trigger something as being worthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the insanity of that, right? It, yeah, like, and I say it and it's like- Yeah, I know. Like, and even more like for people who are trying to wrap their heads around yeah. like how, like 
just to inhabit the mind, uh, yeah. the insane mind of, of this, you, you've talked about um, one of the reasons why you like UTMB and were, you would dismiss Western states, ah, oh, it's not technical and blah, blah, blah. But the real reason you liked UTMB is that you start in the dark mm-hmm. and you got a good 12 hours of, of you know, hiding in darkness yeah. uh, to sweat enough to drop a little bit of weight so that by the time people actually see you, you feel like you look the way you would like to look. Yeah. And Which, that is like, that encapsulates like everything you need to know about the insanity of, of, yeah. of this disorder. And cause I literally see myself as overweight. Like even though the, you know, we might have objective augmented feedback that says otherwise, like I would see myself differently. So like, but once I cross that threshold of exercising enough, something flips in my brain mm-hmm. and I start to feel that, okay, the scales are balancing appropriately. And it, you know, it's just pretty unfortunate that you have to go to those lengths to achieve that and then it doesn't last. Mm. Like, yeah, and then that, with the half-life shrinking or your inability to like be present and experience joy at your own accomplishments is a situation in which you can make peace with that because your job isn't to be joyful and happy, your job is to perform, right? And if this set of behaviors gets you on a podium, even if it doesn't produce joy, that's a deal you're willing to make because you need to excel because love is conditional and you can't get that love unless you do these things out in the world. And whether you're able to experience that or not for yourself is almost beside the point or irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I think that's well encompassed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So where does it, I mean, obviously there's a percolating awareness like that you're doing things that you're, not proud of or not willing to kind of share with other people. Uh, and, and I would suspect it, it's building, there's a pressure cooker aspect to it, but where does it start to really flare up in a way where you realize like at some point, maybe soon I'm gonna need to address this as you're kind of careening off the edge or <laughs> nearing your bottom. I probably really started to notice some, some like cracks like in the, that exterior shell that I like because you know, I, I held everything together really well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think there was almost like a pride aspect of that. But that's like, part of it too, the control. Like, definitely like, and, and that's all, all the reassurance seeking behaviors of like a compulsive disorder is trying to establish and insert control. Like, how do I know I didn't eat too much? I'm gonna count. Like, how do I know that wasn't too much? I'm gonna weigh that, how, you know, whatever it, like. And, and so I started to see it really, I, I think part of it was Lindsay, went back to school in about, it must've been right around that like UTMB 2017 or so. Like, so we lived apart for about 18 months mm. and she was away at school. And I think 
you know, I started to realize how much I relied on her for, you know, some grounding and some stability. And, and for a long time in our, our relationship, I, I really, I felt like I was the rock, you know, like, you know, I helped her get through things and probably at the expense of my ability to share anything, you know, so when I started to talk to her about things, it was a bit of a shock. Like, you know, she always knew there were some things going on, but not mm -hmm. the extent of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I, cause I could internalize it that well. And, um, but I, I think starting to see how much it was impacting our relationship was a bit of that like big crack in the, you know, in the vase where it's like, seeing that my actions and, you know, the things that I'm, I thought I had under control are hurting other people. I think that was a big turning point. And then when she left for school, it was also like, I think that was probably the first time in my life that I maybe like, you know, kind of dabbled into the depressive state where again, I, I'm a pretty happy person. Like, even though I dealt with all this stuff, it felt like I still liked life. Uh -huh. But like when she was gone, I think I started to feel more isolated and lonely. Um, and and I think probably a combination of seeing how much some things I was doing was impacting her and hurting. And then like scaring myself that was, I was having a hard time seeing, you know, a future. Like if you wake up or I would wake up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. and just be terrified of getting out of bed because the thoughts would already have just crashed on me. and. I knew the moment I went downstairs, I was going to kind of like numb those thoughts with food. And then by 6 a.m., I would have consumed all the calories I need for a day. And then I know I have to somehow survive the next 14 hours in the world, knowing I can't eat because I've eaten too much. It was just like a life of terror. Yes, like, and, 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 and it's exhausting. It's yeah. exhausting. And as what you said earlier, I think is, is fascinating where you know, if you think about communities historically from the beginning of time, like we come together around food. Food's an amazing thing and you can't live without it. You have to have it. That sustenance feeds us, fuels us, allows us to grow. But there were times where food felt like it was this enemy and I couldn't be trusted around it. You know, you go into a grocery store and it's like, I don't know, the like the pharmacist just gave you the keys and he mm -hmm. left and he's like, <laughs> go have at it. Yeah. And like, and again, this also comes from a place of privilege where like I have the ability to purchase what I want. So like, I'm not in a starved state. I am not in a true deprived state. Like for some reason, my brain's making me do these things, but that, that's kind of just what I was mm -hmm. living in. So I, I think it was day to day struggling to get through where you just want tomorrow to come. Like you can't wait for tomorrow. And when you're living in that like state of, you just want the next day, you're not living, you're, you're not ever present, mm -hmm. you're missing out on life. And I think there was a degree of that where it's like, hey, you maybe not ha you don't have it as put together as you thought you did. And this isn't a way to live. And that's where, I mean, in that, that Chorus film, I'm really thankful Chorus chose to, to support that, that film. You know, I had approached some other sponsors and they weren't as interested, but mm -hmm. Chorus thought it was a powerful thing to, to talk about. And so I'm very thankful to Chorus for that. Um, essentially, it was like, you're not okay anymore. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. something needs to give and it's not a fault to ask for help. And I think I was still latched onto that. Like, I can just tough through this. Like I can, I can do anything like, you know, it's uh, right because self-will is 
in your arsenal of superpowers because you don't achieve excellence as a marathoner or uh, an athlete yeah. in any field if you're not somebody who has the capacity to deploy your self-will to yeah. procure a certain result. <laughs> yeah. So why shouldn't that thing that is so that I'm so good at why can't th- that should be able to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. I'll just I'll just redirect it here and we'll take care of it. Yeah. And you have to go through the journey of you know trying that until you realize that uh, yeah it's just making the whole thing worse and and meanwhile that I want to talk a little bit more about um, that journey from denial to acceptance and understanding that your behavior because the thing is you covet this behavior and you're like it's not harming anyone else mm-hmm. I'm just going to do this like fuck off <clears throat> you know yeah. but then realizing it is impacting others negatively, like, what do you mean by that when your wife started, when you started to realize that it was it was having a negative impact on her? The first time I really noticed it was actually um, when I was in grad school. So this would have been like 2009, 2010, like Lindsay is a saint. <laughs> she, she was, she, she's always been very financially um, like, insecure, like she's worried about finances, uh-huh. you know, like that's, that's kind of like, it, it, it scares her. And I think that, you know, so as I was going through grad school, her goal was she wanted me to finish without student loans. So she did not want me to take out a loan. And she worked two jobs to support us throughout school. And we only had one car. So she was run commuting to work while training as a marathoner. Mm. So I could take the car to the university. And I didn't, understand this till years later, but like I was dealing with some of that anxiety I had in other areas of my life and school and all these things still through food. And we would get into fights over me spending money at school on food because she had us on a very tight budget. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was a, a budget that was, you know, it was realistic, we could do it. And the ultimate goal is we wanted to get out without loans. Um, but, and so she was very adamant on that. And like, you know, she's working hard in all these other areas. I was struggling and starting to suffocate dealing with these emotions. I didn't really understand why. So I would end up buying these things to make it temporarily like, you know, quell that anxiety. That would lead to arguments or fights Mm -hmm. and, you know, something I didn't wanna do. So that led to me starting to lie and hide those things, Mm. which is not a good thing in a relationship. Yeah, so the intimacy gets eroded and and the trust. I, (laughs) I ultimately, I, I end up taking out a student loan privately that I didn't tell her about. Yeah, you did. So that of I could you fund yeah. like these purchases. <laughs> now and, we're getting to the good part. Yeah, this is the shit I like, wanna hear about. Okay. So like, so I could go out and like, you know, have a, a binge or whatever it was right. and she didn't know about it. Because like, I hated making her angry. I, that was the mm. last thing I ever wanted to do. But I, I also didn't know how to not do these things. Right. Like, there was some link where I was experiencing so much suffocation. The only thing I knew how to get through that was to The hungry to ghost has be, to eat and you're gonna find a way. Yep. You're gonna have to be crafty. And then I would have yeah. so much like guilt around what I just did and or shame of lying to her. And so that- The only like, solution to that being either starving yourself or eating, right? Like, so it just, the vicious cycle perpetuates yeah. and you dig the hole deeper and yep. deeper until you're yeah. alone in a dark room. Yeah. <laughs> so she, needless yeah, to say, so. she wasn't real happy when she found out about <laughs> yeah. the private loan. But then it was kind of like earlier, it's like, oh, I go on and like thing, like I somehow pieced it back together and things are okay and never really addressed it 
again, mm-hmm. I, I think it was a pride thing and it was an embarrassment thing, acknowledging that I was struggling, like, and I didn't want to ask for help because I thought I could deal with it myself. I, I guess the next real big one was one of my compulsions with all the um, food related stuff was, you know, the counting. You know, so I have this obsessive thought that invades my head, causes an incredible amount of anxiety. So I then count to reassure myself that what I was afraid of isn't happening. And for years, that compulsion was more of a physical. I had to like add it up on my phone's calculator. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually like, like just physically do that. Um, and that actually started back in like 2004, um, <laughs> back when I was on a, a cross country trip with my coach. And I don't know if you remember these days, but like you had to pay per text message back then. Uh-huh. Like, and like my coach was like, man, you're, you're just blowing up. Like, plan. Th- I was like, no, nah, yeah. like, yeah, you know, I kind of popular, but uh, I was so mad at people when they texted me. Cause like, I didn't have the money to pay for each text. So like, I was actually just adding up on my phone's calculator. I wasn't texting people, but like I played it off as I was just on my phone all the mm. time. I was just texting. Um, but there were times over, I mean, it's happened numerous, but where, you know, I've almost wrecked my car cause I'm adding up on the calculator. Cause mm. I can't not know right. where I am in the count. And the worst are if Lindsay's sleeping in the passenger seat. Right. Like, you know, we're coming down Highway 50, a windy road through the mountains of Tahoe. Mm-hmm. You know, she you wakes crash up it's like, oh, I, because I, you're like doing this weird OCD thing on your calculator. I don't want to be doing it. You can't put down while I, you're driving. I could yeah, not. No, not I understand. Know. It's like, a, it's that's it's, the powerlessness part of it, right? Yeah. And it makes and, you feel horrible. Like and the it, unmanageability. Like, so you think you're just doing this thing and nobody should bother you about it. And, uh, it takes a while before you realize that the chaos that you're creating all around you. Yeah. yeah. And then and it doesn't matter whether it's drugs or alcohol or gambling <clears throat> or relationships or whatever, shopping. Yeah. 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 Like you say, replace X. Mm-hmm. And there are similar themes probably through a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Like, and then I, I found actually through therapy, starting to open up and talk about things also was hard because that made me realize how the things I would say about myself we're hurting other people because obviously if I'm saying these things about me, I'm judging others indirectly through those types of comments. Mm. You know, like you say, like I am a athletic built dude. Like if I think I have weight to lose, what does that say about you? Mm-hmm. Like, so like there's that like reflective piece that was really also hard. Cause I always thought it was just, you know, I'm dealing with myself and what I'm struggling with, but it's actually hurting other The judgment people. that you have towards everybody else as Which well. Which it's a fascinating thing. And nobody's thing like, judging, but nobody's judging you that way, certainly no. not the way you're judging yourself. And it, and I didn't find myself judging other people the way I judged myself. Of course not. And and I think that's where, that's the secret. Like no one actually cares. We all think yeah, everyone's looking at us. No one is. Like no one's actually paying attention to you. Just reflect for a moment like, on your own level of self-obsession. Yeah. And, and just realize like, even even if they took your 10 and you tune it down to five, people are just still walking around <laughs> thinking about themselves. Yeah. So like relax, dude. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's where that's an important mm-hmm. like turning point in anyone when you're struggling with something is that acknowledging that, and I, I poke fun at Lindsay all the time on this and it uh, she'll she'll just, you know, kind of rouse me and say, you're not special. And it's like, it's true, I'm not special. Like yeah. we, we all have something going on. Like we internalize it. But that's it the other attic thing, the the sense of terminal uniqueness. You have no idea how, this is different. how, how different I am and how complicated and special yeah. my problems are. Yeah. And you'll never understand. And I can't ever talk about it with anybody because they wouldn't understand. And it's yeah. not until uh, you know, you're in that recovery process and you realize like, 
you know, the person you're working with or the community that you're sharing with, like it's all, they're all like, yeah, of course, it, duh. Like yeah. exactly, it's exactly, you know, the facts <laughs> of the, you know, your story are gonna be different from the other person, but the thoughts and the emotions and the feelings are exactly yeah. the same. And this is something I hope does change is just resources for eating disorders or OCD improve and are more readily available. Cause in some of those periods that I was describing when Lindsay was away at school, I considered attending AA because mm-hmm. I couldn't find a support group. Like I couldn't find anyone to talk to. And, but in a small community like Mammoth, I was terrified that I would know every single person in that meeting. And some of them would be my patients. Mm-hmm. And it actually, the meeting was held in our clinic in the conference room. And like, so it was like too yeah. incestual that I, I didn't. And then there was that sense of like, well, I don't deal with alcohol. Like I can't show up there. That's, that's not respectful to other people. And, but there, you know, I was seeking someone to like, hopefully like, you know, give me tools to work with, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then eventually it led to actually getting therapy one-on-one, but in this country, that's very cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Like yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if I was secretary of that AA meeting, I would have let you in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would have allowed, I would have given you permission to. Yeah. But yeah, so it's it it is a weird thing, and uh, that's why it's anonymous, right? There's the stigma and the the fear and the the self judgment and the fear of others judging you, and and how does that reflect? It's, I mean, when it's in your clinic where you work, like it's close to home, it's scary. Mm-hmm. So was there? Was it just a dawning realization like, okay, I, got, I, I have to deal with this. How am I gonna deal with it? Or did, was there like a bottom where something bad happened and you're like, okay, like Lindsay's like, pack your bags, dude, or, or get help or, you know, how did it kind of go down? Thankfully that never happened, but I, I think it was more that realization that I don't see a future living this way in my head. You know, just getting through moments in a day or an entire day was so exhausting. It was hard to imagine actually being a partner to her. Like definitely we would never have kids. Like we would never have a dog. Like I couldn't handle any of that stuff. And I think that started to scare me that I just didn't, I didn't wanna be around basically. Like, so there, there wasn't like a particular moment or an action, but I, I, I saw where it was heading mm-hmm. and and around those same, you know, in 2017, when she was away, um, we had a close friend, he, he had lost his, his life to suicide. And then I'd lost a few friends to the mountains. And I think there was this compounding thing of like the fragility of life where I had a pretty privileged life and I didn't lose anyone other than some grandparents that I started to really kind of like sit with how yeah, like how fragile this existence is. And, and I think that really started to scare me that I didn't trust myself in terms of like knowing I can't live this way. Mm-hmm. And so that was the impetus to finally, you know, seek out and start treatment. And, and Lindsay was very encouraging of that. Um, it, I did cancel multiple my first visits because a combination of that still shame, like being embarrassed that mm-hmm. I would have to talk to someone about it. And then also in the small community, my therapist was downstairs from my clinic. And in the waiting room were <laughs> my gonna, patients. You're gonna see the guy in the bathroom. Like a- <laughs> so like I'd go in and like the, yeah. the mental health services were with orthopedics. So I would be in the waiting room and patient X, what are you doing here, Tim? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm checking up on you. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd spend some story. And oh, so man. there was a lot of that just like embarrassment and, and uh-huh. shame where 
I, it probably took me almost two years before I actually told people in the waiting room, oh, I'm here for myself. Mm. Like I, I no longer had that, that story. It's so interesting that the, the help that you found was literally downstairs from where you worked the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and you could have, I mean, you could have gone to inpatient somewhere. You could have gone to a, you know, a treatment center or something like that. Um, but you found it in your own building <laughs> all along. And that's been your recovery modality it's ever been, since? It's been the main one. Mm. I, I mean, there are times where I wanted or still want to go to like an inpatient facility, but the, the I think there's part of my brain is like, no, no, you don't need that. Or like, oh, that's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And like worried about all these other, yeah. you know, collateral things. Um, but what I, what I realized is like, so it's been over three years now, I think the first, and, and so actually this is, I think important. Like I, I was very resistant to trying medication. Like it was another one of those like, well, that's not me. Like I had some internal stigma around it, even though I never passed that on to my patients. Like mm-hmm. when I learned they were taking meds, like, cause it's therapeutic, you know, there are reasons why you might take a med. Um, but three months ago I started fluoxetine, which is an SSRI. Mm-hmm. And I was resistant for probably two years. And the, the nice thing is my therapist never pushed it, just said, hey, these are tools that are available, but let's try these things. And, you know, just if we might need to. And when it was maybe kind of suggested, I was very hands off on it. But I think that for me personally, really stalled a lot of my progress because in the last three months since starting this, I've actually been able to start to think a little clearer because like mm. this like cloud of, we'll call it cloud of counting was so dense. I would go through a therapy session like every week and I'd leave feeling like I just got out of church camp, you know, like, you know, I'm filled with the spirit. I'm gonna go preach to everyone. And then like five minutes later, I had forgotten it and reality struck me in the face. And I just was in this kind of cycle of- Back to the loop. Back into it. and. And I eventually kind of connected with, okay, maybe that component of like the compulsive behavior or the, like, you know, the behaviors is preventing for me from actually getting into these other things. So I would say I am, I'm very grateful for where I'm at now, but I know there's still a lot to be done because I immediately just fall back into, you know, the old patterns. Like mm-hmm. I raced, I was at a, um, actually, yeah, I was in Spain 10 days ago for mm-hmm. a race. And like, I almost derailed my entire like buildup because of a trigger that shouldn't trigger me anymore. You know, like, and so it highlighted that, hey, right. you're still in this vulnerable state where you have, your quiver is getting more robust. And like, I'm very proud of that, but I, I need to refine that and continue to work on it. And it, it seems it has to be like a daily practice. Yeah, I mean, you're three years in, Yeah. Uh, you know, on some level that's, early recovery, right? And you speak about it very eloquently and you have a grasp on the condition and how it's impacted you and the way forward, but the brain and its rewiring takes a little bit longer and those triggers don't go away. The recovery is about noticing them as they arise and and having that extra moment to not act on them and to take a contrary action. And to the extent that the SSRI can, can, function as a pattern interrupt or be, you know, another tool in that quiver. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's probably good that you didn't do it right away. Like you're, you're, cause then you can sort of just divest response. Well, I'm taking mm-hmm. this drug, I've dealt with it or whatever, but yeah. to shoulder the responsibility for 
for your own recovery and realize that, you know, you're, you know, three years in and it's still, this is still, you know, it's like, you're not over it. Yeah. Like this is something you live with and you develop these tools and those tools become rote and routine, but they need to be practiced. And, uh, and uh, you know, cause in, the, in, in that dark, you know, lonely room that, uh, that disorder is doing its pushups, so <laughs> to speak, and just waiting for a vulnerable moment mm-hmm. to, to leap. Yeah, and I think that that parallel with sport is really impactful where I didn't get here overnight and I cannot run it as quickly. Just like we didn't get to these levels of achievement overnight. Mm -hmm. It took year after year after season after season of building and it became a habit. And so, you know, I think recovery is a habit. You have to continually practice it. And like you said, flex that muscle and get it stronger and be kind with yourself when you mess up. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I am not good about. And I don't think a lot of people are, is that self-compassion? Like the things we say to ourselves are horrible and you would never say yeah. that out loud. Like, I, I don't even tell my therapist the things I say to myself, you know, like, <laughs> but it's like, how do we, like, you can't live that way. You have to be compassionate towards yourself. Yeah. That's a tough one. Like, what are the tools that you practice to get over that piece? Cause I struggle with that just acknowledging that something is and trying not to place judgment on it, good or bad. Like, okay, I over ate today, that happened. Like that doesn't inherently mean it was bad, like, but I have to accept it. I don't have to like what happened, mm-hmm. but I can acknowledge that I'm human, that that did occur. And what am I gonna do next? You know, and not get hung up on, you know, that good, because- Revelations. Yeah, it's, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Careful there. Because, yeah. uh, um, you know, no amount of guilt will ever change the past and no amount of anxiety can shape the future. You really need to kind of bring it back into that present moment. And, and that's where I'm kind of starting to realize, like, I'm relearning all these things. Like, I still don't trust myself with food like I'm relearning my relationship with it. But in that, I'm also relearning like what it is to have fun. You know, like it's like, it's almost being like a kid again in terms Mm -hmm. of like all these new experiences of like, oh, like having a meal where you're not thinking about every micronutrient or macronutrient that's in your food and counting and being worried about all these things off in the future or what you just ate, like, and actually listening to someone talk is a pretty cool thing. You know, like being truly immersed in a conversation and present, like, I mean, I, I think you, you facilitate like this really nice space because I don't know how long we've been going, but I haven't counted once. Mm-hmm. Like that's not, that's good. like I, I yeah. was counting this morning. I was worried about coming in and seeing you because like I haven't been running much. It's been a week mm-hmm. off from my race, you know? So all these things, I, and, and I think that's part of the compassion thing is like thoughts are automatic. You right, and that's huge progress. Them. That's huge progress if you can sit and have a meal and not be doing the thing mm-hmm. that you've done for decades obsessively and compulsively and get to the other end of the meal and realize you didn't do it. That's like massive progress. So I'm interested in the experience of going into a grocery store or entering a restaurant, like what what was going on in your mind previously in terms of the foods that would find their way into your, like what you're thinking about when you're pushing the cart down the aisles then versus like what it's like now and how, cause you you gotta eat, right? And you're still trying to, you know, perform as an athlete, like all of, all of those are triggers that you can't avoid in your life. No. You have to confront it, them and find new strategies. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really tricky. 
the 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 short answer is I fell into the cost, convenience, and um, comfort choices. Like, what could give me the fix the quickest? And that's normally something high sugar, high fat that I can just devour. Does takes no prep. Mm-hmm. So it's processed foods, and uh, and again, like this is one of those like I curated this notion that like I'm the donut guy. Like I love donuts, and I do, but like. Like how Scott Fauble is the burrito the guy. The burrito guy, like yeah. donuts, donuts <laughs> yeah. and dirt were my yeah. thing, you know? Like, and, and that, that is something that I still like, you know, but a donut is great. A dozen donuts is excessive, like probably for anyone. Um, and uh, so I think with, with the food stuff, I didn't know how to control. And there were times where like the, like the, like binges have a very clear diagnostic kind of criterion, but like the, you know, the uncontrolled, you know, kind of consumption would occur a lot. Um, and and it kind of just felt powerless. So one of the, you know, strategies was just elimination, try and like keep things out of sight or out of our house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the unfortunate thing, like you said, like as an athlete, you have to train, so you have to fuel. And, and this is where I'm thankful that, you know, my bout with anorexia was in college. And over the last decade plus, it's been more of this, like, like I said, the, um, the OSFED, the other specified feeding eating disorder, where mm-hmm. it's kind of like a mashup of a lot of different components. Because if I was still actually restricting to the point of weight loss, I would be perpetually injured. And mm-hmm. as a distance runner, you have no career yeah. if you're continually injured. And that's where, you know, other people that have suffered or they, suffered long enough in that critical time period of their adolescence or early 20s, their bone density could permanently be damaged. Mm-hmm. Like, and so, like, I feel grateful that I didn't have that occur because I've never thought of myself as talented, but actually my biggest superpower is my durability. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I've hated myself for never being thin enough or skinny but enough. But the durability but is the durability rooted in, has allowed in, me to, in having a little more you know, meat on your bones. And, yeah, and, and I'm doing this bones. 20 years later without mm-hmm. injury because of that durability. Like, and so that was never a deficit, but I think you know, acknowledging you know, our, our inadequacies aren't things that make us less, of a per, like, you know, less worthy of acceptance or love, but you, know, you should celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up using running as really a mask to hide behind where I, if I lost my control around food or a meal or events, I knew I had this secret weapon. I could just go out and run four or five, six hours without eating or drinking. And like, and I also would chalk it up to, I'm working on fat adaptation. Like, you know, (laughs) I- I heard Killian talking about how he would go like all day and like, so this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you do that every day or every big training block, that's not mm-hmm. how it's done. Like you have to be selective and you have to be thoughtful and really precise and recognize that the recovery is important where if I went out and ran for five hours without food or water, I wouldn't come home and then eat everything. I was in that euphoric state yeah. and I would not recover the way I should have. And, and I don't think any of this stuff, like I, I'm not of the belief that had I figured this out, I would have been a better performer. I just think I would have been happier throughout my entire career. Mm. Like, and I do, well, I do think there would have been more consistent performances. Like I could have avoided a lot of the huge pitfalls, failures or blowups I had, because a lot of those were mental or physical um, because I wasn't treating my body well, you know, I mm-hmm. wasn't nourishing it. Um, and and that that is hard because I'm in it to perform, you know, right. and, 
and it has real life consequences of like you can lose your job right. if you don't perform. Yeah. Like Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there are there are, you know, amazing pressures on top of all of this mm-hmm. outside of just, you know, how you're interacting with your peers at work and your partner at home. Um we, we're like an hour and a half into this. We haven't even talked about running. <laughs> it's like, we should probably point out I, that like, Tim's pretty good run. at running. Yeah, like- <laughs> Or I can run my mouth. <laughs> yeah, like, um, you have this, uh, you're kind of like average in high school, you go to college, uh, you start having some success. You take your shot at marathoning. I think you're like a 218 PR marathoner, mm-hmm. two, two time Olympic trials qualifier. But uh, recognizing you're not gonna kind of get to that next, you know, super elite level. You find the trail world, you have success. I think your first ultra, you won the 50K US championships. Mm-hmm. That's true. So like right out of the gate, distinguished, Nike contract, and then um, UTMB in 2017 was, was that, that was your top race, right? When you got third? Yeah, I got third in 2016 as well. Right, but you were tw- that was 22 hours and yeah. then yeah. the following year mm-hmm. under 20. So the world is looking very bright. Uh, everybody's looking at you, the next big thing. And you win a lot of races after that, tons of races, but you couldn't quite recapture some of those, you know, high highs mm-hmm. or whatever. You've had, you know, some some disappointing results over the years. uh, And I'm sure a lot of that is wed to everything that we've been talking about today. So I'm interested, not so much in going back and rehashing old stuff, but how you're thinking about your training and your racing now. I heard you say at some point that a big part of your motivation uh, came from a place of anger and certainly in recovery, that's gotta be replaced with something better and more sustainable. So, what does that look like for you now? Like it's gotta be a totally different relationship with the thing that you do professionally. It is. And to what we spoke about earlier, like thinking that maybe these, these things I battled were actually a superpower. There's been that fear of letting it go. And then when you pair it with subpar performances, you start to connect those dots and think, mm-hmm. oh yeah, it's cause you're not doing these things anymore. Sure. Like, and it would be so easy to go back just, and do that, yeah. And like, I have to fight that thought, but I always remind myself of how lonely and isolating and unhappy I was in those moments, even when outwardly I was having success, like I was pretty empty and there was never gonna be enough. So like if I had one team in one of those years, I honestly think it would have been worse because I would have doubled down on everything because mm-hmm. that was pre starting therapy. I think my my life would have really struggled mm-hmm. as a result if if everything I basically am afraid of then was amplified to an eleven because of that you know success or notoriety I I would have completely crumbled um, but I think some of what I'm really working on is making sure I acknowledge that okay I am very proud of the steps I'm taking in terms of recovery and separating that from my performances. So just because, you know, the last couple of years, I've had some pretty tough breaks on the biggest stage at Western States and at mm-hmm. UTMB. And it would be easy to say, okay, you're, you're past your prime, you know, you're washed up or you just don't have it anymore. But, or linking it, okay, it's because I'm not doing these things. But I, I'm confident that I just have had a string of bad luck, you know, and that's the sport. 
ultra running is hard. Mm -hmm. Like unless you're Courtney or Jim, yeah, right. like, you, like, and I always wanted to be that, but I have to acknowledge I'm human. Like I'm of this earth. And the reality is I'm gonna lose 99% of the events I line up for, but I'm like, I still hold on to that one big dream that I'll eventually get it. And that's what keeps me showing up. Mm -hmm. And starting to see that like my individual success doesn't have to be the top of the podium. Like there's so many ways for me to achieve like my best result, even letting go of what other people do, mm -hmm. which is hard. Yeah, one of the but. things that I got out of the, the Koros doc, which also chronicled mm -hmm. you running Western States um, was the fact that even though you had a disappointing result, you were kind of fast out of the gate, things didn't go quite as you planned, um, that there was a joy and uh, and and uh, a sense of connection and uh, and like community that was really buoyant for you and very different from reaching the heights of of being on the podium at UTMB and going under 20 hours. Like even though the result wasn't what you wanted, the lived experience of that was somehow more meaningful and important. For sure, and that was, I think the community part was huge because in the past, I've always prided myself on this lone wolf mentality. And it, which mm -hmm. is laughable because no one does anything alone. You know, we always have help from the moment we're born to any achievement, but there's something that, you know, is this like, you know, self-made athlete or X or entrepreneur yeah. or whatever it is. And like that I can do it alone. And asking for help is a weakness or asking for help shows that I, you know, like vulnerability is something I shouldn't, you know, lean into. And so I think with that first experience with States and even last year, yeah, last year I, you know, welcoming my inner crew and actually letting them in to help me was so much more powerful and meaningful because I do feel like we created something more beautiful as a result for having mm -hmm. been broken and then coming out the other side than if I had just knocked it out of the park, mm -hmm. you know? And, and what was fascinating is the amount of people that reached out afterwards and like shared their stories or wanted to connect because I hadn't given up on myself and I finished was far more reaching than if I had won the race, you know? And, and I think that was a, like another important reminder that people aren't gonna remember the races you won or the records you set or, you know, the, the IPOs you hit and like all these things. It's more like, hey, how did you make them feel? How did you connect on that personal level? What were you able to do together as a community? And that's, that's something I'm really trying to, you know, lean into, which is hard because I'm still afraid of people's opinions. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I can't shake that fully. Like I still find myself doing a body checks and all these things, but I'm getting better at confronting it and letting that anxiety kind of course through me. And realize that my fears aren't matching reality. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to like, almost feel like, okay, that demon's starting to like, you know, become more of a whisper. Mm. Like, Yeah, that's really beautifully put. I mean, the antidote to the isolation and the habitat in which the disease can really, uh, you know, kind of linger is community, right? Like being with people, being mm -hmm. transparent and open and vulnerable and, and trusting, letting people in. Like so much of it is just like allowing yourself to open the door to those yeah. people who already wanna help you, who've been waiting for you the whole time and are finally grateful and thankful that you're giving them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it's hard when you're stuck in that desperate cycle, but you've walked through that. And what I love is that now like recognizing that and realizing that that is not only important, but maybe that's 
the whole thing, you end up starting this trail series, which is, mm -hmm. is really just a, like an entrepreneurial external manifestation of, of your recognition of how important it is to cultivate community and share the things that you love. And now like you're doing that. So it's one thing to just say, oh, I'm gonna start a race series or start a race. But here it's like, it's so wed to your recovery in a really beautiful and authentic way. Mm, thanks. Yeah, it's yeah, cool. It, uh, and it, it was terrifying also. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, uh, have you ever seen that documentary Fire Festival? Yes. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. was 100% you're going to was that? they were going to like do a docu-series on <laughs> Trail Fest. How bad? And it was going to be like it? people out in the woods. Well, it's kind of like, like <laughs> you know, just because you're a trail runner doesn't mean that you can be a race director and create a race. It's sort of like an actor yeah. in a movie thinking they can write, direct and produce or, yeah. you know, like you compete <laughs> at UTMB. That's like that's like like a guy who shows up for to do two days on you know the Avengers movie where yeah. there's a million moving pieces uh, and thinking, well, I can do this, right? Yeah. Like, and then going and making your little indie yeah. movie, right? But yeah. you're, you know, what are you on the second? You have the second one coming up. How many? Yeah, yeah. it'll be our second one this September. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, it, it. I mean, it was it was an amazing experience, and and I definitely credit all the people involved that helped make it happen. You know, all my local partners in Mammoth and. Uh, it, it was it was beautiful, but I think what I've really recognized is as much as as a kid I dreamt of being that superstar sports athlete, naming the stars, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like you know being a professional. I think it's a common dream for a lot of kids. You like, are a professional, you know I, that, right? <laughs> okay. I, I it wouldn't matter Touché. how, like, if you had beaten Francois and Killian, there'd still be somebody else. Like, yeah. you wouldn't, you would never feel like you actually never achieved enough. that height that you had set for yourself. Yeah. It's yeah. true, touche. It, um, but go ahead, sorry. No, <laughs> and I think what I've recognized though is the impact I really wanna have on the sport or our community is giving other people those opportunities. And I learned from so many people that came before me, like reading their blogs, talking to them. And I, I know that the next generation of trail runners are gonna supersede anything Killian Francois, myself, Courtney, mm -hmm. Rory, any, any of those people have done. And I hope that we just, facilitate and give them opportunities and help foster them to achieve those things with a little bit less of the sidestepping that we may have occurred because they're gonna you know, encounter some you know, kind of fork in the road and they're gonna struggle, but hopefully they can learn from these experiences and recognize, hey, you don't need to change your body to meet sport. Through training, your body will adapt to what you're doing if you're nurturing it and taking care of it and providing, you know, I, love to it. And I think the ultimate act of self-compassion would be to fuel your body properly mm -hmm. um, and to actually recover. But I, I think those are types of, the types of things that led me into Trail Fest where I see it as an opportunity to have a platform to welcome people to the majestic place of Mammoth, which is absolutely stunning. Like it, it's a beautiful place in California um, and allow them the opportunity to then go have this kind of self-discovery in a majestic place with a very supportive community. Like, I mean, last year was amazing. We had, we had a woman from the Midwest. She s showed up, had never been on a mountain in her life. She said that she just heard me talking on a podcast and thought it was a good idea. So she signed uh -huh. up and like, and she finished her first ultra. Wow. Like cool. we had a guy from Florida, he was training on a treadmill with an oxygen mask. And when he crossed the line, he wept in my arms. Like he was just like, 
couldn't believe what he had just done. And I think that's the type of stuff that really fills me up where I want to share those experiences with people. And what I told all of our runners last year was, this is going to be hard. You will suffer. Like no one, and I mean, that's life, right? There's no way of avoiding suffering, but what better place than in a supportive community like this, where Mm -hmm. if you do stumble, if you do fall, if you fail to make the cutoff, we're gonna pick you back up, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna have an amazing weekend learning, watching, being inspired by other people, and then hopefully that excites you to go do another race somewhere. Right, like removing, removing the veneer of, of uh, intimidation from yeah. the thing that's already intimidating yeah. and like creating a, a welcome environment because for I've, all comers. I've, yeah. I've had periods where I've definitely thought my life would be healthier without running, which is a strange thing to say because inherently running is not bad. Like running is an amazing gift to have, but my relationship with it was so, so kind of like, skewed and, mm-hmm. and twisted that it was leading to unhealthy behaviors and experiences. But running has also changed my life in so many positive ways. And that's what I want to share with other people. Mm-hmm. And in, I mean, I, I am all about the community, but I also love competition. Like I'm still that, you know, athlete. And um, like, and I, I'm not, a, like I recognize that we need, you know, and, and that is my job, you know, like I didn't perform for a couple of years and I basically, was at risk of losing my job, you know, and, and that's a hard thing to swallow. But I think there's that both and, you know, you can have celebrate the top level competition and strive for big audacious goals and foster community, individual wins, and recognize that we all can have something to better ourselves as a result, even if you didn't top the podium. Well, not only are those two ands not mutually exclusive, they feed each other because I think the more that you serve this community of people through the series that you've created, the more fulfilled you'll become and it will just make you feel more whole Mm -hmm. and a better version of yourself to approach the competitive side with the races that you're competing in. I mean, what is that like? Like, does that, you're still competitive, you're in the game, like how are you thinking about like the big races that are coming up? Like what's on the calendar and what is your relationship to uh, you know the buildup and and your you know how you're imagining your participation in them versus what it was like a couple of years ago. It's definitely shifted. Where, as you said, for a while anger drove me, and, and there have been times where I think, can I even perform if I'm not angry or mm-hmm. if I don't have that like you know built up you know doubt that I'm trying to prove everyone wrong. And and I think there are there are and this might be you know that big question: What is your why? You know, like in life and sport, I think why shift, they change. And mine has definitely been shifting and changing. And, and I think I don't, I've recognized I don't need that anger or that doubt or that insecurity to drive my good performances. I need to lean more into that community, that love, that self-acceptance, and that's gonna allow me to self-actualize. And, and I do understand that that's a bit, you know, maybe, you know, it, it's kind of a privilege and indulgent to be able to like be at that place, but I, I'm really thankful, like, especially right now, like I, I switched sponsors this year right. and, and you know, that was hard. I, to be honest, I, I thought I was gonna grow old with Hoka. You know, like I thought it was gonna be, you know, I was gonna retire and we had a longstanding relationship and, but several years of underperforming, like it caught up to me, you know, and, and that's the reality of sport. And that's, 
and I have a great relationship with everyone there. I just saw them a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. at, at a race and saw my manager and marketing director. And it uh, like, and I understood that. And going back to earlier, you know, I had some friends that top of their game, Meb loses his sponsorship, you know, like, then he goes on to win the Olympic trials, yeah. medal at the Olympics, win New York and, Bo- or no, he won Boston. Like, and so I, you know, it was hard though, recognizing that like, hey, I'm no longer valued, but that was business. And my goals, my dreams, and what I believe I'm capable of are still there. And that's where I'm really thankful, you know, with Kraft coming in. When I started talking to them, they had, it really reminded me of like my early days talking with, you know, the small, you know, the co-founders of Hoka um, mm-hmm. and they're excited about the sport. They're kind of creating this misfit group of athletes and, and inspiring people that want to change the game, you know, from the footwear to the stories we tell to the ways we engage with the community. I mean, the way they stood by Tommy was unbelievable. Yeah, like, it's amazing. It, it just like, it reminded me that, hey, these are the people I wanna surround myself with and, they most importantly believed in me. You know, mm-hmm. they said, hey, we don't think you're done. We just think you've had a tough string. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I've le- le- like leaned into is my inner community, you know, with, with the brand and with our team and myself and my, my therapist and, you know, everyone that's in my circle of recognizing I still have these big goals. I know what it takes to, you know, achieve them. And I'm working towards that and I don't, have to have this false sense of humility anymore. Like for a while, I thought it was bad to say I wanted to win UTMB. So like I'd skirt it and say, I'm just out here to have fun. I'm gonna, you know, enjoy the vistas. Mm. And, and the reality is you wouldn't do this type of training, put in the hours, see like year after year, or, you know, destroy your body through the Alps if something wasn't driving you. And it's okay to want to win, but I'm separating that. Like I don't need to win anymore to complete myself as a person but I want to win and I'm training with intention to win and I believe I can win and that I will win, but I don't need that to validate myself anymore. Right. And, and I think I've never been able to authentically say that. I may have said it, but I didn't believe it. Like I still thought my acceptance and love was contingent on achievement mm-hmm. or something external where, and as you said, there's never enough. Like That's massive growth. You, you know that that I mean, in this evolution of of your why and how you define your why and what motivates you as you pivot away from these old uh, behaviors and patterns that don't serve you into this, you know, different, more you know, nourishing way that involves the trail series and the community and like understanding that you don't have to earn love and all of that. Like, you don't get the dopamine hits that like anger is going to give you yeah. or these other spikes that you know you've come to rely on over the years and have like mistakenly associated with performance. But what you're doing is building a really solid foundation for a healthier approach, a healthier approach to being a competitive athlete and you are taking out an insurance policy on your longevity, but it takes a while to build that foundation, right? So you're still, you're still, you, you haven't emerged from the foundation <laughs> stage yet to actually show people what you're capable of, yeah. which I think makes it a very exciting time for you. And that's where it would have been really easy to default where dropped out of UTMB the last two years again. Like last year I had COVID, Finally caught me after two. I'm gonna mindfully relapse into my food 
you know, yep. idiocy just and just so I can yep. extract this one performance and make sure that I'm holding on to these sponsors yep. and then I'll go back to the recovery stuff. And then it'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really yeah. proud that I didn't do that. Uh-huh. And and I think it's just that re, like affirming and a reminder that just because you do everything right doesn't mean you're actually gonna get the outcome you wanted. Like life isn't fair. Like you're not gonna get what you deserve, mm-hmm. but you keep showing up. You know, you keep trying, you keep giving the effort. And at some point, I am a believer that things will work out in a positive way, but you have to go through a lot of shit to get there, yeah. you know? And, and that's where I love that saying, I think it came from Vanilla Sky, you know, the sweet is never as sweet without the sour. And yeah. it's like, we all have sour in our life, you know? And instead of trying to numb that sour, you know, let it fuel you into something else. Cause once you get the sweet, it's gonna be really good. Mm. It's still a pretty new sport, yeah. right? And we've, there's been a lot of growing pains and, you know, it's sort of emerging out of this phase of dirtbaggery into like real money. And, yeah. you know, we saw Iron Man take over UTMB and like, these are big changes and I'm sure not everyone's happy about them, um, but, they're a reflection of growing interest uh, in the sport, more people participating in them, uh, money coming in, sponsored, like all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and, 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 and meanwhile, um, athletes getting more and more sophisticated and savvy about how to race and train. So prior or in maybe the, 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 the flight or the generation that preceded yours, there were a lot of people who would come they would arrive on the scene and they would just destroy everybody and be unbelievable and then would be completely unable to ever replicate those performances and and are never to be heard from again. Only a couple outliers had any type type of longevity in the sport. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we see, you know, there's Killian and I mean, Courtney, people like that. I'm interested in, in, you know, why you think they're so good or so much better than everyone else, but, you know, what are you learning about what's required to have that kind of longevity or to maintain an elite level of performance over the course of, you know, a respectable amount of time as opposed to a flash in the pan. And also as a kind of side note to that, you can, we saw what happened with Anton Krupika, right? Like he, he was like, he was the dude gone mm-hmm. forever back, like had yeah. an incredible performance last year. like. That's very cool. Like yeah. I think that, you know, just because maybe to your point, like you've had a downturn, um, you know, there's still sweet to be mined on the other side of sour. Yeah. In any endurance endeavor or sport, I feel that the like the patient will ultimately be rewarded. Like it's consistency is key. That is the underappreciated skill set in endurance. Like it's about stacking hours, season after season, year after year, and keep showing up. You know, I, I talked to a close friend one time and I said, you know, or he kind of asked a similar thing, like, mm. you know, what sets people apart? And I, like my response was, it's hard to beat someone when they don't know when to stop showing up. Mm-hmm. Like, is that like Rocky Balboa? Like you just- It's true keep, in anything. Like you, you know, just, you any, gotta grind. Right. And, uh, and I think, that's something I really hope to do in our sport is set the next generation up to have more consistency and have the ability to not only self-actualize, but avoid burnout, you know? And so if we can do that collectively as a community, I think we will have won. So that if, you know, your kids wanna get into ultra running 
they know that the healthy way to do that is to nurture their body or if they want to get into marathon or sport or anything like you know don't try to manipulate your body to mirror some idealistic version you've seen of x mm-hmm. because you don't know what's actually behind that like i mean if someone was modeling me they were modeling after a very sick unhealthy person like and i wouldn't want that to happen you know so i i hope that we change those conversations and then i think through that discourse and discussion we can get more people to basically adhere to you know the values and norms that are going to allow for healthy like relationship with a sport and that's going to just trickle down into all aspects and make the community stronger um i i think that's probably you know going to be the most important thing and and you you mentioned the you know big players coming in and kind of you know maybe changing you know the face of the sport and that's happening change mm-hmm. is hard like it's uh Growth is not does not come easy. It. I remember back in school, um, you, undergrad, we we had to read this book, um, uh, Omniv- Omnivore's Dilemma. Sure. And yeah, you you would know, right? <laughs> like, you know a little bit, bit about nutrition. Um, it's uh, and like I believe he talks about like you know our choices. Like we vote with our our dollars, vote with our choices, and I feel like the same is true for our community sport. You know, people are always going to show up and support, purchase, and align themselves with people and brands and companies they share similar values. And we have collectively a lot of power to do mm-hmm. that. And I think our group of trail runners can do that. So like, if we don't like things are going a certain way, you know, we just can make those choices on our own. Um, but uh, I think that I am excited to see where it goes because as we get more opportunities for athletes, I think we're gonna see, you know, even more transcendent performances. Like we're gonna get more Courtney's and gyms out there mm-hmm. in the next generation as we make it's inevitable. Cool. It's inevitable. In the same way, you know, if you look over the history of Ironman or triathlon, the people that would win were people who were really good at one of the three. Yeah. And if you happen to be good at two of the three, you were like, you know, yeah. beyond, you know, so you would be, you know, a marathon runner or a collegiate track and field athlete. Um, could do well. Now you have to be unbelievable at all three and that's not a guarantee of anything. And now in the world of ultra running, we're seeing you, Walmsley, like people that are Olympic trials qualifiers in marathon going into trail running, like you're only gonna see more and more elite performers, especially when the money comes in. Like, you know, it's like, if you're an elite track and field athlete or marathon, or why are you gonna fuck around in the trail world when there's no money and you could just get hurt or whatever, there's too much risk involved. But, you know, that's changing. And I think it's only gonna attract a higher caliber of athlete and who's who's approaching it, you know, not from uh, well, I eat granola bars and do whatever to like being very precise mm-hmm. and intentional about what they're doing. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of room for growth here. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, that's where I feel lucky that I came mm. up when I did because if I had been this athlete, and this goes back to even high school, like I wasn't recruited mm. out of high school to go to college. I walked on. I wasn't an all American in college. I left without that accolade that every collegiate athlete wants but I kept going and like, I just didn't give up on myself. But I think with the sport, like, and I was fortunate cause like when I was in high school, we aren't where we are 20 years later in so such good guidance for high school kids. Mm-hmm. Like the level of training they're getting is next level. And we're gonna see that in trail running. If I'd come up into trail running 10 years from now, I couldn't have gotten away with all the shit I did with starving myself and not treating my body well. 
And I hope that people recognize that the only way to really self-actualize or get the best out of yourself is to do these things properly. Mm -hmm. You know, no shortcuts. You know, it's, it's not, there aren't any hacks out there that are gonna get you there. Like a hack is the quickest way to get you on the injury list. Mm -hmm. Like you're gonna end up with stress fractures, you know, whole host of things. And, and there are times where I wonder like, was all of that abuse I did to my body over the last 15 years, like, is it finally catching up on me? It's like, maybe. And if that's the case, like I had a good run and like, I'm not gonna like let that deter me from what I wanna do next. Mm -hmm. Like, but I'm confident that that isn't the case. Like, I think that that is my superpower is the durability. And I just have been fortunate to have messed up so many times and still had second chances. So that's kind of Yeah, no, I, I get it. That. Yeah, I get like, it. I think like you're describing like, oh, if I, if I starve myself or do this, what a, this thing that I know is not in my long-term best interest, but probably will help me short-term. It's the short-term performance-wise. And when you're like young and you're a gunner and that race is everything, you'll take that bargain every time. And I'm yeah. sure tons of athletes do that. It's like who cares? Like never sport. I'll deal with the whatever my bone density. You know, ten yep. years from now, I don't care about that. What I'm what I care about is what's going to happen in six weeks. Yeah. So it's really hard to overcome that, especially with you know younger people who have a hard time thinking long term about anything like these are decisions that yeah. you know start to make sense when you're in the twilight of your yeah. career and you're trying to you know keep going right we're we're in that rocking so, chair moment where we can just yeah. like reflect on everything yeah 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 but that's where like in the social media age we are rewarded with instant gratification so like undoing or not undoing but like acknowledging that's one mm -hmm. path not the only path and learning to pleasure delay, I think is really important to instill with anybody in any endeavor. Like, because that's where the greatest, you know, benefit's gonna come. Sure. Is if you can it, display some emotional control to then at some point reap the rewards. Mm -hmm. And I think a good way to kind of, I wanna close this with um, a little bit of guidance and help for either people who are in the midst of suffering from some version of, of what you've gone through and, are, and the alarm bells are going off in their minds because they're relating to what you have to share or people who have people in their life that they are confused around how to best help them and for the teachers and the coaches and the parents to understand how to look out for this and what the warning signs are. So if you're you know, a, a, a basketball coach or a track and field coach, or you're a, a seventh grade teacher, or you're a parent whose kids are now adolescents and you're noticing, hey, this thing around food doesn't look quite so right. Like, what have you learned about what to look out for? And once you have a sense that maybe something might be awry, like how do you, navigate that, how do you address that with that person? How, you know, what is the way, and this is obviously not, there's no easy way to answer this, but you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are like, I know this person needs help. I don't know how to help them. What should I do? That's another two hour podcast. We could go, you <laughs> spent hours on this. I, like, I think Lindsay was out that was walking. That like eight so questions, we're, so. Yeah. We're, we're, I'm good, I got my <laughs> coffee still. Um, I think it's important to, to let people know that you love them. Like that's that's at the heart of it. Like you are there, you love them, you know, for who they are. Um, you aren't gonna be the one responsible to fix someone. And that's what I think a lot of us try to do is we want to be the, the fixer. Um, and in reality, with anyone that might be suffering from something, like they need to be, they need to autonomously make that decision to, to seek help or get treatment. Um, but you need to show that you support them. 
not enable them, but support them. And I think then it's about collaboratively reaching out to people that are the professionals. You know, so if you're a coach and you see this kind of behavior starting in someone that you're worried about, you know, I think bringing in a professional to help would be good. You mm-hmm. know, getting, you know, the the school psychologist or the nutritionist, like, but it, I think it's important to really not approach people as you're doing something wrong. You need to come to them like from a place of love and let them know that, hey, like, you know, we're worried about this and let's, you know, talk about what's going on. Cause I think conversation is the, re- the root of everything. Like I wish I had been strong enough to have conversations with people when I was growing up mm-hmm. or in college or with Lindsay early on, like a myriad of reasons I didn't, but I think not talking allowed me to basically build unchecked narratives in my head that just ruminated, got deeper, the roots got deeper. And eventually like it just, you know, started to strangle everything. But and talking and conversation also aren't light switches. You didn't grow aren't. up in a household where you learned how to do that or where that was modeled or practiced. So if there isn't a habit or a practice or yeah. an environment where trust and kind of open dialogue is already kind of in place, that takes a lot of time to build and establish. You can't just you know, come to somebody who's never, who has no, who's not used to yeah. that and say, it's time to talk and expect that person to be open with you. Yeah, no, not at all. And I think that's where you just have to approach like all these conversations or people kind of with the grace of recognizing, meet them where they are. Don't expect a quick fix. You know, it's not a light switch. We're dealing with dimmer switches. You know, it's gonna be a slow up and down. And that's the thing with recovery is we expect it to be linear and it's anything but, right? Like I'm sure you mm-hmm. have felt that or you, you know, it, and it's it's very circuitous and it's, you know, what we think it looks like is, you know, this A, A to B, you know, vertical line or, you know, like, you know, going up on the graph, but it's, it's just convoluted, it's messed up. And being kind to yourself or others when they aren't making the progress we would expect because each person's time frame is gonna be different. Um, but I think, I think, you know, it's probably important, but yeah, having the conversations is not gonna be easy. And that's the, the hardest thing. Like I've seen people suffer and, and I can't reach out to talk to them because I'm afraid I don't have the right words. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what prevents a lot of us from doing a lot of things is the fear of not having the right thing to say. And sometimes just being there or saying something is what someone needs to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, it, uh, I think, I don't know, it, I, I really try to tell myself like, you know, stop measuring and start living. You know, it's, life's too short to count all your Cheerios. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you, you really need to get out of, out of that model and, and realize that, you know, the beauty that is in life is if you're actually in the game, you know, like you can't just be a spectator in your own life and like window shop while everyone else is feasting on, I don't know, the, you know, the goods of what being alive is. And, and I think, you know, anyone that might be suffering or has questions like, you know, just know that, the ultimate act of courage would be just to talk to someone like, and, and it's never gonna be as bad mm-hmm. as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Like, like we said, no one's watching us. Like no one, well, people might be watching us on YouTube right now, but uh, it's, you know, no one cares the way we care, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's very well said. Yeah, I mean, obviously, certainly, if you're listening or watching to this and, and, and you're having a sense that, that maybe you need to talk to somebody about your own behavior, it would be absolutely key to reach out to somebody you trust, somebody who you feel uh, will receive you with grace and not judgment. I mean, the judgment piece I think is huge, but you're not gonna be able to solve the problem in your head, Mm -hmm. despite what you think. And it's not going to 
go away because you're pushing it down. Uh, the only solution is going to come by raising your hand, inviting people in, and not only asking for help, but receiving that help when people offer to help you. Mm-hmm. And that is much harder than trying to, <laughs> you know, grit your teeth and yeah. figure it out yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, well, if I figure it out myself, then I don't have to tell anybody about yeah. it, right? That's the thing. And I think if you're somebody who's bearing witness to somebody suffering, whether you're a parent or a friend or a colleague or a teacher or a coach, uh, it can be very confusing mm-hmm. because if you don't have any personal familiarity with this, mm-hmm. it defies logic. Why can't they just fix this? Or yeah. why don't they stop doing that thing? Can't they see? And I can see what they need to do and they can't. And so with that, like when you're, when you're kind of thinking of it in that context, when you approach that person, you're gonna be coming at them like pretty aggressively or with a lot of judgment or confusion. And that's gonna put that person on their heels mm-hmm. and defensive. So you gotta find a way to broach it in a compassionate way, um, you know, by draining it of any judgment and, and just coming at it with love and curiosity. And to your point, like not being codependent, I'm not here mm-hmm. to like enable you. Yep. I'm not gonna keep your secret. And, you know, maybe I can't even be your friend right now, but like when you're ready, I love you. And when you're ready for help, like I want you to, I want me to be your first call. Like mm-hmm. just, and it's just, it's hard, man. You it, know, it is. like and when people who care about the people who are suffering, yeah. they're suffering themselves and they can't help that person unless they're taking care of themselves. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's Al-Anon or finding their own community with people who have, you know, navigated that same thing, I think becomes really yeah. key. That's spot on. and. I love what you said. It's that like non-judgmental awareness of the situation. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to place judgment on what they're doing. You could say, I don't even need you to stop. I'm not telling you to stop. Nope, I'm exactly. just saying like, I know what's up here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like and, Cause yeah. that's gonna disarm people. Like mm-hmm. all of us are conditioned where if, if you come in, I'm gonna immediately like, you know, be resistant and, you know, lie my way out of something. You know, because there is that shame component that you're wrapped up in, mm-hmm. and that will lead you to do things you don't want to do. Um, but I, I think that you know, coming in with that non-judgmental kind of awareness of the situation, and then also educating yourself. You know, I think a lot of that, you know, the misconception of what OCD or eating disorders are, like with OCD, it's like, oh, I'm I'm compulsive, like you know, like mm-hmm. I like to arrange my pens certain ways, and like so it it kind of gets maybe reduced into like something that's more like a personality trait versus like an Mm. actual disorder. And I think just educating ourselves on, no, this is something that's actually leading people to suffer. Like it's intrusive, it's unwelcomed and it's debilitating. And progressive. And and progressive. Like, and what we said earlier, if you think about anorexia nervosa, which is one of the major eating disorders is the, has the highest rate of mortality out of any mental health like illness. That's scary. Like, so it's not just a, oh yeah, we all overeat or we all have like problems with food. It's like, yes, that's true, but let's educate ourselves that some people really are suffering. And I think that's the important piece where like, then we can come to them with compassion. It's not just, oh yeah, like I don't like how my legs look in the mirror mm-hmm. or, you know, how my, my shirt fit today. Like, cause all those are true. And, and I think it's just recognizing that, okay, like this is a serious thing and not to reduce, like, you know, belittle it um, or, you know, kind of reduce it in, in your mm-hmm. mind. Uh, I think that's a huge step because then the person that's suffering will feel a little more welcomed that, okay, like you actually understand, you know, it, it's not like, oh yeah, like I, I count my calories. It's like, well, did you count 300 times today? 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> did you- I'll win that game. Like, I mean, you wanna go to war over like this? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's kind of okay. like, you know, but it's all a spectrum. And I loved what you mm -hmm. said earlier. It's like, it's about us managing our feelings and our triggers, because we're not gonna live in a world, and I don't want a world where everyone's tiptoeing around and like they can't say certain things. You know, I, I, we should all be respectful, but I need to manage myself in the world that's an mm -hmm. open environment that people are gonna say, do, and act in different ways. And I can't expect them to always like coddle me. Right, yeah, Tim, I just is it okay to, if I eat in front of you? Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah. like, so it's about uh -huh. like finding that balance point, but like just being respective of where people are. Yeah, and, and, and understand that it's it's a disorder, it's a disease, it's not the person. Like yep. decoupling the identity or that person you know from the behavior, I think is really important. And realizing that it's a coping strategy born out of a feeling of being less than or out of control or yeah. being incapable of, of giving yourself the level of self-love that that you know we all deserve, mm -hmm. right? And that recovery, is that journey towards self-acceptance and, and self-love as the antidote to, yeah. to that darkness. And it can feel like I'm broken, I'm the one, the thing that's wrong, not acknowledging that, oh, I do have this illness. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the computer is glitching. We don't just throw the computer away, like you upload the software better. You know, you right. just like give it a patch. And it's like, we just gotta like, you know, kind of work on the, you know, how we're dealing with things. Mm. Like, but I think that prevents people from asking for help or mentioning, cause it feels like they're broken. If you knew like, just how bad I am and how broken yeah. I am and how yeah. beyond repair the situation is, like that's the mentality. And it's, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, letting go of the reassurance seeking behavior is very scary. Like I've had times where I don't know where I am in the world. It's so unsettling because I'm trying to actively fight whatever, behavior was going to reassure me that it was okay. And, and that's a terrifying thing. So it's like, you're caught in this massive storm out in the ocean and you were, had this shitty little life raft and like arm floaties mm -hmm. and you were terrified, but you felt some sort of comfort with your little raft and your arm floaties compared to when you have the calm open sea and you're all alone and there's nothing else there. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed scarier. to do with all this like serenity? I'd, and I'd rather have the noise in my <laughs> yeah. head and like yeah. grip on white knuckling right. these little things mm -hmm. than that. But eventually you recognize that the calmness and the serenity is a state you can live in and trust. But as you said, it's gonna take time. Mm -hmm. And also it's gonna take resources and it's not, it's not easy like to mm -hmm. get those resources. Like when I left my job as a full-time therapist, I lost my health insurance. Mm. So the best thing for me to deal with some of these anxiety inducing things was leaving that full-time employment. And by doing so, I lost access to my healthcare. Right, you couldn't pay I couldn't, for it the wasn't, recovery resources no. that you needed, yeah. Which, you know, mm. it, that, was a, that was a shame. That's fucked up. Like, yeah, that yeah. sucked. Like, and I mean, again, I'm, I'm at a place where, I mean, I, I had two other careers going, a pro mm -hmm. athlete and a race director, like, you know, building something. So I was really like burning myself out with three things, just filling the void, but it shouldn't be that way. I wish we had access to resources that, you know, cause people are struggling mm -hmm. like, and, and it's always gonna be that way, but there is, like you said, everything is impermanent. And there was something I came across in, um, in my recovery is the term wabi-sabi. And it's this Japanese philosophy 
taken from nature that everything is impermanent, imperfect, and incomplete. And I think it's a beautiful way to kind of look at ourselves, our situations, the world. Things are imperfect. They are, you know, impermanent. It will pass. And we know that in ultras, you could be mm-hmm. in the lowest low you've ever had. And somehow you went 70 more miles after that because you didn't give in yet, you know, mm-hmm. it'll pass. But then it's also incomplete. Like our recoveries aren't complete, you know, our, our careers, our relationships. And I think just like me leaning into that and accepting that, oh, like someone that wanted control on everything, someone that like was tied up in it, like perfectionism and thinking that that was the way to, you know, salvation or, you know, being loved or accepted and recognize that everything is impermanent, imperfect and incomplete. Like it helped me kind of like start to like settle in to the muck and just be like, oh, okay. Like I can live with that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, cause I'm chasing this, this figment of something that doesn't exist. It's, it's theoretical perfection. Right. You've convinced it yourself it's real, but it doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah, it is an it's like impossibility a like, anyway. Yeah. So, and there's a relief in that, yeah, but also discomfort, <laughs> and yeah, and that's what we, we like to numb ourselves, <laughs> yeah. Rich. Like, we, yeah, but I, I have really learned, and I continue to remind myself that like learning to let go is far more powerful than holding on, and that that's not easy, but I'm trying to let go of more and more things mm-hmm. and trust, and that's a very counterintuitive. Uh, edict in and of itself, but to tell a hard driving, very competitive athlete or business person or just ambitious person in general, that the better way is in the surrender and the letting go. You might as well be speaking, you know, Mongolian. Yeah. Like it, it just doesn't, it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like the whole reason I'm here and and what fuels me is my ability to like, double down on that self-will and yeah. hold on even more tightly and push, 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 push. So the subtlety or the, you know, the kind of being in that state where you're untethering yourself from results and, you know, floating in that calm yeah. body of water is yeah. like, yeah, it's like being on Mars. Like that is not, you know, that it takes a long time to really understand what that means and to and to grok the fact that it, it, it's not about um it's not about like giving up. Yeah. It's just tapping into a more powerful and more sustainable fuel source that not only will lead you exactly towards the same things that you're ambitious about, although your goals may change. You know, you yeah. might be ready for that. <laughs> uh, but but also, yeah, you'll be able to do it with with joy and mm-hmm. with others and all of these things that you have decided are are indulgences or distractions. Totally. And that's, I think that was key. What you said mm-hmm. is the, you don't have to like it. Like, you know, it's that like acknowledging this, the radical acceptance idea of, hey, this is what's occurring. You don't have to like it, but what are you gonna do about it? You know, mm-hmm. what's that next step? And, and I think that's where people get stuck sometimes. Um, but uh, well, that's why you know the universe is wired to you know create these bottoms so yeah. you can have these reckonings and these realizations, can, which are gifts, right? Yeah. Like, so you crashed into the wall and now you're on the other side and you're you've had you're like, oh my god, yeah. and now we're talking about it. But the fact that somebody listening to this might be struck and short of hitting their own bottom is going to say, I'm going to do that. Like, yeah. that's unlikely. It's probably not going to happen. You know, you have to. It's an experiential <laughs> thing. You might have to suffer. Yep a certain kind of pain yeah. that's different than the pain you suffer when you're running an ultra marathon. 
a psychic pain, mm -hmm. a spiritual, emotional pain. And, uh, and those tend to be levers and motivators totally. to do things a different way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure, yeah. I, without so, a doubt. Like, and and I, think, I think you're spot on, like, the, like you, know, you have to go through that resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, thinking about running the 100 miles through the Alps doesn't seem as scary or daunting as like living with your own thoughts when you're like really in that. Right, like, which is the source of all of man's it, suffering, of right. course, his inability to sit alone for five minutes with yeah. his own thoughts. We're gonna fill yeah. that void with something. It's but, but yeah, it's, but I'm gonna go like the the, it, the suffering in the mountains is really just a, an elaborate distraction yeah. from having to sit alone with yourself for a couple minutes. And how often do people now take their phone or their podcast or whatever while, you know, a lot of people will be on their run or their bike listening to this. Like, and something I've actually done that I think is really great for where I'm at is I've unplugged when I go run. No more stimulus. Mm. I was almost using that, like I forgot what running felt like. Cause I was like, there was always something I was trying to get out of it yeah. outside of. And like, I was just overstimulating. And I went for a run and I literally was just listening to my breath my footfalls, the birds. And it was, it like reminded me of me as a kid running. It's like, oh, like that's what I love about running. Like moving through space quickly, you know, kind of feeling effortless and floating. And you described the flow state just a little bit ago, like, you know, letting everything go, letting go of the control, not thinking, getting rid of that analysis by paralysis. That's where you're gonna get, produce your best work. Whatever it is, if you're an artist or an athlete or a, uh, you know, if you're in, in medicine or mm -hmm. I feel like you do have to let go of that control, stop thinking and trust the process. Mm. Well, to be continued, man, I can't wait to see what you're, you're, gonna, uh, you're gonna manifest and do. I'm excited about the trail series. I'm excited about uh, the performances on the horizon, but mm. more than anything, just this message that you're carrying has a very, uh, you know, kind of important vibration to it. Uh, you're an amazing, you know, vehicle to speak about this thing, and and my goal for this podcast, really, honestly, is to is to just make more people aware of what you uh, went through, so others don't have to, and for that message to ripple out and transcend beyond like the trail community to a larger, a larger, you know, population of people. Because I, I do think, as I said at the outset. Um, it's important when when men speak up about this because I, I do think that there are just so many men out there who are suffering in silence mm -hmm. with this because there isn't a culture of permissiveness around talking about it. So I yeah. applaud you um, for the courage and the, the vulnerability that you've demonstrated in, in you know kind of shouldering the responsibility like in a public service announcement way to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was really cool and... Um, I appreciate your openness, man. Thank you. Yeah, and, cheers. and thanks for sharing those stories because it, yeah. it makes a difference. Someone out there will hear mm -hmm. one of your podcasts and it'll save, it'll save them. So, yeah. We'll see, man. All I do is I put it out there and then it's up to them, right? <laughs> yeah. Deta I'm surrendering. I am surrendering this go. podcast to yeah. the world, Tim. Wait, can we do the... Peace. We're gonna Plans. do it. We're not there yet. I was gonna. I was. This was like my big opportunity. <laughs> oh, did I jump the like, gun? Yeah. Like his is like. I'm. I'm gonna softball. I'm throwing you. I'm tossing you the softball for okay. the plug. Like, okay. where do you want? You're on Instagram. You got the. Like, what are the URLs? Where do you want people to go? Yeah. I'm sure people are gonna want to learn more about um, the uh, Mammoth Trail series in September. So, where where can they find mm -hmm. out more about that? Uh, 
mammothtrailfest.com would be it. Mm -hmm. We're it's pretty cool. We we have over a thousand people signed up for this year, um, and there only there aren't, aren't too many spots left. So if anyone's interested Ooh. in joining, they yeah, they, better, they should get on it. Jump um, on it. And uh, and someday I'll I'll learn how to you know do thoughtful merch. But uh, right yeah. now we don't really you have brought much. Brought me some but, swag, uh, but yeah, you got to up your game. We don't do that either. We probably <laughs> should do that. It's like. Do yeah. people really want coffee mugs? I guess yeah. they do as I take a sip out of my co my branded <laughs> coffee mug yeah. that I can't sell because yeah. this is the only one we have. But I, I would just encourage people if they were interested, like, and they, they aren't gonna run, like just come join the party. Like we're looking for like what we're terming the Sierra Soiree. Like it's just gonna be this big gathering of our community at the end of September before the snow hits the Sierra. And, and if you can't make it, go out to one of your local trail events, like volunteer, join in, just see how powerful it is watching people overcome, you know, their doubts, their fears, these incredible, you know, endurance feats and, and just go be part of it. I, I think it, it's gonna make all of us a little bit better. So, you know, I, I would really just encourage people to get out there and, and join the trail community. It's, it's, it's the best place in the world, so. Cool, man. Yeah. Right on. Thank well, you. Well, thanks again for yeah. sharing. I'm gonna <laughs> let you, now, now here it is. You, you do it, you take it. Peace, plants. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated, and sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, The Meal Planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, as well as Dan Drake. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. <laughs>